If you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or are concerned that someone you know may be in danger of hurting himself or herself, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255. It is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. Astonishing Legends would like to thank the Great Courses Plus, Squarespace, Simply Safe, Bespoke Post, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Welcome to 2021, folks. Ugh. Well, we're glad you could join us. It's time for our first show of the year, and tonight we're going to take a look at a topic that's been sitting around in our story folder since, well, before Astonishing Legends even had a name. The disappearance of young Australian pilot Frederick Valentich. Mr. Valentich took off from Moorabbin, a suburb southeast of Melbourne, on October 21, 1978, for a relatively routine flight a little after 6 p.m. local time. With 150 hours of flying time, he should have had little difficulty flying one of the most common private aircraft in the world, a Cessna 182L, a four-seater that's still in production today. This one was registered VSDSJ, Delta Sierra Juliet, and was operated by Southern Air Services, available to pilots like Frederick for a fee. His journey was supposed to take him southwest along the coast of Cape Otway, where he would then turn about 80 degrees to the south-southeast, heading for his destination, King Island. The whole trip should have taken approximately one hour and nine minutes each way, depending on prevailing winds, which were light that day. Conditions were nearly perfect. The sky was mostly clear, the sea was calm, and visibility was excellent. And although he was rated for nighttime flight and this flight was getting close to the end of the day, it was still light out when he was in the air. His first leg took him to Cape Otway as planned, and then he turned to head toward King Island, about another 52 miles or 28 minutes away. What happened next is what makes this story astonishing. Frederick's last communications with the Melbourne Flight Service Unit, or FSU, have puzzled experts for over 40 years now. He saw something outside his cockpit windows that he couldn't explain. Is there any known traffic below 5,000? He asked the Flight Service Unit. No known traffic, they replied. Over the next six minutes, he described in great detail a harrowing encounter with some kind of craft that was flying circles around him. On top of that, his Cessna began running rough while this unidentified craft toyed with him. At the end of his conversation with FSU, strange metallic scraping sounds were heard that went on for 17 seconds, then silence. He never arrived at King Island. An extensive four-day search found no trace of him or the plane he was flying. What happened to Frederick Valentich? <laughs> Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. It is hovering, and it's not an aircraft. The last known words of pilot Frederick Valentich, 7.12 p.m., somewhere over the Bass Strait in Australia, October 21st, 1978. Join us tonight for part one of our two-part series on the legendary disappearance of Frederick Valentich. (laughs) 
And we're back. I'm not sure how we managed it, but we're back. That we are, folks. It's 2021, and while I was glad to see 2020 go, 2021 is already giving me agita. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hear there's a vaccine for that coming out soon, and uh, you'll probably need a booster shot, so you, you better start camping in line, like now. Uh, that's the truth. Well... Uh, just before we get started tonight, I debated sharing this on the show, and I thought about it for a good week or two before deciding to. But the reality is, even though we only know a very small percentage of you guys personally, you do still feel like friends to me. And I wanted to share some personal information with you because all my friends that aren't listeners of the show already know it, and it seems like you should know too. On December 22nd, my mother-in-law passed away after a three-week battle with COVID. I've known this woman for 30 years and was as close to her as anyone in my family. And watching her go from healthy to being gone in such a short time was not only heartbreaking, it had a profound impact, as you might imagine, on my entire family. My father-in-law contracted it as well and is recovering slowly, thank God. But there's no changing the fact that our family will never be the same. So the holidays were hard and probably will be for years to come, but I just felt like I should let you folks know about that significant change in my personal world. I'd like to thank all of our listeners who responded with love and support to a tweet and Facebook comment I made mentioning her passing. It was heartwarming and very much welcome. We're picking up the pieces as best we can, but it's a long process, and I just want to remind everyone to stay vigilant and be careful. The vaccines are around the corner, it doesn't make much sense if you haven't contracted COVID yet or been through it already to have stayed safe all this time, only to come down with it now when we're so close to the finish line. Listen to the CDC and the science. 50% of the people spreading COVID right now have no symptoms, and they don't even know that they're carriers. They may never come down with anything, but without a mask in public, they can easily give it to someone who won't survive it. So I wear my mask. Every day, every time I go anywhere to protect others, especially the elderly, but everyone really. I don't ever want to think that someone else got this horrible illness, which I have personally seen what it can do to somebody, and I am telling you, you don't want it. And I don't want ever to think that someone got it because I gave it to them. Wearing a mask for me is not about fear or freedom. It's about caring for my fellow human being, which I do whether I know them or not. Uh, well said, brother, and I love you, man. Um, you know, and knowing your mother-in-law at least a little and feeling like part of your family, I shared in your shock and heartbreak. And although I lost an uncle to COVID back in the late summer, this was more direct and traumatic in many ways and therefore painful. But in light of all this and what we've been stressing since the beginning of the pandemic, I'd like to share a viewpoint that I feel is profoundly relevant and an attitude we should all keep in mind and practice to adhere to. The statement comes from an article sent to us by a friend and listener, Nancy, and is titled, What C.S. Lewis and Martin Luther Would Say About Our Coronavirus Panic. The first part of the article features an excerpt from an essay Lewis wrote in the 1940s and which now can be found in a collection of his writing called Present Concerns. It deals more specifically with society's fears of living in an atomic age and stresses how regardless of the threat from atoms or microbes, we're better off if we can muster the courage to go out living as normally and responsibly as we can. 
The second part of the article is even more apropos and poignant, as it's about a statement made by 16th century Saxon priest and theologian Martin Luther. Martin Luther had lived in an era within what's considered the second plague pandemic, where the plague, or the Black Death, was endemic throughout Europe and the Mediterranean from the 14th to the 17th centuries. From 1348 through the next four years, it's estimated that the plague killed up to half the population of Eurasia. So it's safe to say that the folks who've come before us have had it a lot worse, as people in Luther's day had been experiencing pestilence for hundreds of years already. And yet this experience is subjective and subject to perception. If you've experienced loss directly, then it's the worst thing ever, no matter the circumstances. So as someone who believes we should all endeavor to remember our history and its lessons and the context in which we live our lives, I'd like to relay what Martin Luther had to say about how to think and act during a pandemic from a letter he titled, Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague. You ought to think this way. Very well, by God's decree, the enemy has sent us poison and deadly awful. Therefore, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others, and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, and I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely. As French writer Jean-Baptiste Alphonse Carr wrote in 1849, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Well said. Yeah, I didn't say it when you said it, but I love you too, and I appreciate... Uh... I appreciate your perspective on this and, you know, we'll get through this together. Uh, mm -hmm. I guess we've been isolating now. We're recording bi-coastally. We haven't been in the same room right. for over two years almost. Yeah. <laughs> so. I haven't seen you uh, in person in a while. Yeah. 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 So um, hopefully we could remedy that. It wouldn't have been this long if it weren't for COVID. No, it kind of worked out that way. But part of our goal and mission and what makes us happy is delivering something that people enjoy hearing. Maybe it irritates them a little, but it stays engaged. And uh, you know what? As long as you're enjoying it in some weird way, we're happy. Yeah, of course, we'd rather be doing this uh, together in person. Those were the glory days. Those were the salad days. But you know what? We're going to keep doing this as long as we can in any manner that we have to. And uh, we're still going to give it our all. Yeah, we will get back to that. In fact, we, we'd like to, uh, when COVID is come and gone, we'd like to maybe even get on the road during the summers. Uh, that's something I'd like to do anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, shifting gears here, like a poodle trying to find reverse in a 1967 <laughs> Volkswagen bug. <laughs> uh, yes, it's a trick. There's a trick to it. Yes. There's a trick to that. Uh, and right. I'm not sure, but maybe a standard poodle could figure it out. Well, uh, Forrest, mm. weren't you recently on our friend's podcast? I think we should tell people about that and where they can find it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had the lovely pleasure of sitting down with our good friend Gletters and his co-host Steve Freestone on their paranormal podcast out of the UK called Anomaly. Did I tell you that? That was my first thinking of naming this show. Yes, we've pitch. talked about it on, on yeah, the air before. That's actually. true, we yeah. have. I was going to yeah. pitch that, but .com was taken, so yeah. <laughs> never mind on that. Uh, good that they got it. Well, anyway, so in our two-part series just released before New Year's, 
And yeah, of course, he meant it to be just a one-part roundtable discussion. But hey, he knew exactly what he was getting into with me. So <laughs> that should have been a surprise. Well, at our two-part roundtable, we discuss a bunch of weird stuff that happened in 2020, paranormal or just not so normal. And it was fun and interesting convo for all involved. So really great and informed guys, those two. Uh, and you can find Anomaly, the paranormal podcast, and that's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts, or on their website, anomaly.co.uk. All right. I actually can't wait to hear that myself. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> it's uh, a lot yeah, of me I'm... just blathering. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, like this, I guess. I've never heard but, that uh, before. Yeah. Uh, let's, <laughs> right. All right. Well, let's okay. get into tonight's show. So you may wonder why we're picking this topic for the first one of the year. Well, we had no doubt seen this case covered since I, for one, and I'm sure Scott, too, uh, we have seen most of all the original Unsolved Mysteries episodes back when they aired. That's how old we are. Well, then, of course, several listeners in the last few years had once again brought it to our attention as a case that was worthy of being covered by us or just something fun that was not one you hear about all the time. So we did make a note of it in our infamous story files, but I'm afraid I didn't jot down the names of all those who had suggested it on social media. I usually try and do that when we make notes in our file, like who suggested it to us, so we can give them a little shout out. But Scott, I think you did manage to dig up a name from our massive trove of show emails. Yes, Christopher Tyler. He actually emailed us way back in April of... <laughs> 2017 about this. No, that's timely for us. Yeah, I that's wrote him back. Timely. So three years ago, I wrote him back a few days ago. So sorry it took so long, Chris. But uh, <laughs> he actually now is going to be coming on the show. And he's actually doing one of the voices tonight in the transcribed uh, radio conversation between uh, Valentich and FSU, the uh, flight service. And we're going to have him on in part two because he is local to the area and has some additional insights into it. We yeah. were actually planning to record it this week, but we canceled that session uh, so that we could watch TV the day that the U.S. <laughs> government was almost overthrown at the Capitol. Yeah, it was, it was, what you're saying is it turned into, <laughs> instead of a, uh, uh, a focused recording session when we're so dialed in yeah. and laser spotlighted, you were telling me, I think, earlier in the day that this might be a TV news-watching evening for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know if I would be able to really focus. Focus. Totally fine. I, I you know, I just kept working or not working at it and uh, had the news on in the background, uh, so that was interesting. But anyway, that's kind of cool that we're going to have him on the show three years later. But what we're <laughs> saying is, as you heard in the cold open, uh, we certainly were aware of the case, if not from Unsolved Mysteries, but it is one of Australia's biggest aeronautical UFO mysteries, you could say. Yeah. Although it's maybe not really well known in North America here. But here's the kicker. What reminded me finally about it, put it at the front burners, that kind of thing, I was reminded of the case once again by happenstance. Scott had suggested that Rich and I watch the first episode of season six of the original Unsolved Mysteries when we covered the book, The Siren Call of the Hungry Ghost, because season six, episode one, had a segment on the astonishing past life account of Bruce Kelly, who amazingly recalled the details of the death of submariner James Edward Johnston aboard the lost vessel the USS Shark, and World War II. And of course, like I usually do, digging the nostalgic vibes of watching that episode, I watched the next one. And episode two of season six featured, yep, the strange disappearance of Frederick Valentich and his single-engine airplane, a Cessna 182. Yeah, that Bruce Kelly story, that is pretty amazing. The details of that, it's just, it's one yeah. of those that, you know, if you're on the fence about 
believing any of this at all, that one will unravel <laughs> your viewpoint. It's really something. Because there's confirmation. And so I watched that one again, too, just after, you know, I, I said like, yeah, okay. Episode two, season six, that's the one that's got Frederick in it. And then, of course, I watched episode one again. They're all such fun. But that case there, that was mind boggling. Plus, he goes to visit the family and confirms a lot of the behaviors that he was able to nail down in his uh, hypnotic regression sessions. That was really the kicker that I thought, uh, Scott, let's, let's cover this right away before it gets uh, too long into the year. And it's a good one to come back for uh, the start of 2021. So let's get into the story because it's actually a brief event. But what I love about it, like a lot of these things, is that a small brief event that you think, well, there you go. It's a weird, you know, weird happening. And most likely he was mistaken. He saw the planet Venus. He was upside down. Whatever crazy, rational thing that you can explain it away with, the more you start unraveling the details of it, and you have to do a little digging to find these details. And certainly that was not as easy to do pre-2012 for a reason we're going to get to because there was a little bit of information that came forward. But prior to that, it's like, it's a small event. And then you start looking into it and you realize like, there's a lot more to this. And the implications are much grander and weirder. And uh, there's a lot of stuff and moving parts to this that are connected to a seemingly small incident. So the incident we're talking about happened on Saturday evening, October 21st, 1978 at 6.19 PM. And that is when 20 year old Frederick Valentich took off from Arabin Airport, just south of the city of Melbourne. And I promise not to do too much of an Australian accent, even though it's fun. <laughs> it is fun. There was one of the more fun accents to do, but uh, <laughs> uh, we'll try not to say Melbourne, Melbourne too much. Melbourne. Although I wonder if that, to them, that sounds a lot more accurate, like somebody saying it with that flat, ugly American accent and then continuing on in their own accent. Yeah, I'm not sure. Which sounds normal to them. Yeah. Okay. All I know is that when I say Melbourne, I think M-E-L-B-I-N, <laughs> Melbourne. <laughs> Melbourne. Anyway, <laughs> Melbourne, Australia, is the capital and most populous city of the Australian state of Victoria and the second most populous city in Australia and Oceania. So it's nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. Well, Valentich had been flying for two years and had accumulated over 150 hours of solo flying time because he had hopes of one day becoming a commercial airline pilot. So he was a serious student. Now, we're going to get into his character a little bit later, but this was a routine training flight for fun, and he may have had some other purposes, which were debated later. But initially here, his flight plan was to fly southwest from Moorabbin Airport along the South Australian coast towards Cape Otway for about 40 minutes. Now, as we said, this was meant to be a 125 nautical mile or 232 kilometer training flight in a Cessna 182L with registration VH-DSJ. So now at this point, he would bear a slight left and then start heading south-southeast across Bass Strait towards King Island. Bass Strait is a sea strait separating the Australian island state of Tasmania from the south coast of the Australian mainland, specifically the state of Victoria, with the distance between those being about 150 miles or 240 kilometers. So Valentich's flight path would be roughly on the western edge of the Bass Strait, bordering the eastern limit of the Great Australian Bight. I've come to love that word, too. Yeah. Well, as a sailor, you should know the word uh, B-I-G-H-T, right? Yes, I do. Jim, from the knot that you frequently have to yeah. use a bowline on a bite. That's, <laughs> that's right. Which is how you can make from a rope 
a harness that you can climb a mast with on a sailboat if you're having an issue. There you go. Here's a little uh, trivia uh, just while we're talking about uh, nautical stuff because it, it may figure here. Can you tell me the knot that was thrown at Richard Dreyfus by the captain of the Orca to see if he could pass a seamanship test? Uh, it's been a while since I've had to pass basic Yeah, no, I don't remember. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Okay. No. Let's move on. <laughs> you don't was know it, the answer. Was, was it a sheep shank? I don't know. Anyway, I just thought you would know. It had the five loops in it. But uh, any case, talking about historical stuff, there's a stone monument commemorating the first flight across the Bass Strait by Arthur Leonard Long in 1919. So if you can see that on the wiki page. It's kind of cool. So that was the first time it was flown across. I don't think he ran into such weirdness as Frederick did here. Well, Volantich had flown this route several times before, so he was familiar with it. From the interview in the Unsolved Mysteries episode, Ken Llewellyn, senior PR officer for the Royal Australian Air Force, or RAAF, states that Volantich had an appropriate instrument rating for a fairly routine flight. There's no reason it shouldn't have been completed successfully, and, and one of the great mysteries of Australian aviation occurred just 45 minutes into this flight. Because just over halfway through the flight at 7.06 p.m., Valentich contacts Melbourne Air Traffic Control for a seven-minute conversation reporting that an unidentified aircraft was above him, following him at 4,500 feet or 1,400 meters, and exhibiting puzzling visual qualities. Melbourne Air Traffic Control told him they didn't know of any other aircraft at that altitude. Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. Is there any known traffic below 5,000? Delta Sierra Juliet, no known traffic. Delta Sierra Juliet, on seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000. Valentich reports back to Melbourne Flight Service Unit that he could see the unknown craft was large and had four bright landing lights. He radioed he couldn't tell what kind of aircraft it was, but it was flying at a high rate of speed, passing about 1,000 feet or 300 meters above him. Delta Sierra Juliet, what type of aircraft is it? Delta Sierra Juliet, I cannot affirm it is four bright, it seems to be like landing lights. Delta Sierra Juliet. Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. The aircraft has just passed over me at at least a thousand feet above. Delta Sierra Juliet, roger. And is it a large aircraft to confirm? Uh, unknown due to the speed it's travelling. Is there any Air Force aircraft in the vicinity? Delta Sierra Juliet, no known aircraft in the vicinity. Valentich's next radio transmission reported that the unknown aircraft was approaching his location from the east and thought that the other pilot of the craft was messing with him on purpose. Getting another look at it, Valentich said he could see its shiny metal surface and a green light was shining from it as it was orbiting above him. He also reported that he was now having engine trouble. Yeah, and I think it's important here to note what he's describing because there's a fair yeah. amount of folks speculating on what actually happened that day. And some of the theories do not account for the specificity of the visual details that he's covering. Yeah. So right, just right. keep that in mind when you think about the, the light and the shiny metal surface. A lot of people will be looking for the mundane explanations. And there are some that have already been drafted up. If you look at the Wikipedia entry on this event and other places where you take a skeptical viewpoint to it. And, and we'll look at those too in part mm -hmm. two. But there's some of the explanations just do not fit with the details that he is describing. It's not a vague sighting. It's a very specific sighting, which I think is important to remember. Yeah, and there's other things going on, which we'll find out later may be verified by others. But in this case, I have to agree, it doesn't really seem like any mundane explanations 
fit, but maybe they will to you in hindsight. Not you, Scott, I'm talking about the listener. Melbourne, it's approaching now from due east towards me. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet seems to me like he's playing some sort of game. He's flying over me two, three times at speeds I could not identify. Delta Sierra Juliet, roger. What is your actual level? My level is four and a half thousand four five zero zero. Delta Sierra Juliet, and confirm you cannot identify the aircraft. Affirmative. Delta Sierra Juliet, roger. Stand by. Melbourne, Delta Sierra Juliet, it's not an aircraft. It is... Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne, can you describe the aircraft? Delta Sierra Juliet, as it's flying past, it's a long shape. Cannot identify more than that at such speed. Before me right now, Melbourne. Delta Sierra Juliet, roger. And how large would the object be? Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne, it seems like it's stationary. What I'm doing right now is orbiting, and the thing is just orbiting on top of me. Also, it's got a green light. And some sort of metallic, well, it's all shiny uh, on the outside. Well, this is also from the Unsolved Mysteries segment. In an interview, air traffic advisor Stephen Roby describes Valentich's radio calls as sounding like it wasn't to the point where he was panicking, but he sounded genuinely concerned by what he saw, and that he sounded worried and confused. And as Valentich described how the strange aircraft was behaving, Roby became concerned too. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet. It's just vanished. Delta Sierra Juliet. Melvin, would you know what kind of aircraft I've got? Is it a military aircraft? Delta Sierra Juliet. Confirm the aircraft just vanished. Say again? Delta Sierra Juliet. Is the aircraft still with you? Delta Sierra Juliet. It's uh, not... Now approaching from the southwest. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet, the engine is rough idling. I've got it set at 23.24 and the thing is coughing. Delta Sierra Juliet, roger. What are your intentions? My intentions are to go to King Island. Uh, Melbourne, that strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again. It is hovering and it's not an aircraft. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne. Melbourne FSU asked Valentich if he could identify the aircraft now, and as he responded that it's not an aircraft, his transmission was cut off, followed by what sounded like, as some have reported, metallic scraping sounds. But air traffic advisor Stephen Roby, the guy who was listening directly to the transmission, has described it in interviews as a clicking sound, a pulsing sort of, and electronic. So it's a little different than the usual descriptions you hear of the, the sound. Not that it, it makes much difference to us, but I, I believe it should be exact. Yeah. Because that might figure in later as to what that sound could have been when we take a closer look at it. Well, that sound lasted for 17 seconds, then silence. And that was the last anyone heard from Frederick Valentich.
Now, Roby had doubts about Valentich's safety with flying a single-engine airplane over water, losing communication in such strange circumstances, so Roby put an alert phase on the Cessna. Once the alert phase had lapsed, then they went to the distress phase stage, and that began the search. In an interview with Frederick Valentich's father, Guido Valentich, stated that at about 11.30 or midnight, Frederick hadn't come home, and he'd heard on the radio that an aircraft went missing. Then, two policemen showed up at the door and verified that the aircraft was presumed to be his son's, and a search had begun, and they didn't know what happened to him. So, a search-and-rescue operation ensued that covered over a thousand square miles and included the Royal Australian Air Force, eight civilian aircraft, and ships in the area. But the search was called off four days later on October 25, 1978, after no sign of a crash or evidence of a lentage or his plane was found. Now, here are some odd things that follow the incident, which to me really kicks up the interest level. Yeah, and again, these are witnesses in the Unsolved Mysteries piece. These are not the only witnesses. Right. We have more, which you're going to hear about shortly. But these are ones that were specifically shared on uh, that episode that talks about this, episode six, season two. Yeah, and we're talking about it in as, as framing this first part of the discussion because it inspired us, I guess, to get back into it. And I thought it was pretty well done. But what's also kind of cool is that when they shot the footage for the episode, it wasn't that long after that uh, incident occurred. So you'll see some of these people as being younger, like uh, uh, Stephen Roby. He's on there as a younger man. And now you can see him in later interviews as an older man. Yeah. Well, 2018 is the 40-year anniversary of that. So it's fascinating, the passage of time, but also being fresher in people's minds when they give their interviews for this segment. Yeah, that's invaluable. That's one of my favorite things about when, when we come across a topic and someone has captured witness testimony uh, fairly contemporaneously. That's always great. 2021 is here, and don't you just feel like shaking off the cobwebs and dust bunnies from 2020 and introducing a bit more purpose into your life? Uh, in short, uh, yes, I do, as I'm <laughs> sure most people do. Uh, look, 2020 mm. was full of, let's say, uh, some unique challenges. Uh, yeah, that's putting it lightly. <laughs> I mean, look, people had to change their whole way of life, but, but the older you get, you start to realize with each challenge that there's this opportunity to learn and grow, thrive and survive. And we don't know what 2021 will bring either. I'm hoping for a pony. <laughs> I hope you get it. Well, <laughs> but look, I can guarantee you this. Our good friends at The Great Courses Plus are driven to make this year our year by continuing to offer opportunities to learn with purpose. Because when we learn with purpose, we can do better and be better. For example, you and I have been taking in the highly insightful course, The Forgotten War, The mm. Lasting Legacy of World War One. You know, I've always been compelled to learn about World War II, but World War I has also fascinated me, and it's something we should all know more about. Not a lot of movies and TV shows about World War I, and it, you know, because it's usually about World War II. But make no mistake, World War I was just as significant, and it was thought of then as the war to end all wars. But then World War II comes along. Yeah, is that, is that a joke? Am I supposed to laugh at that? I'm not sure. Uh, but then well, World War II comes no. along. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, but, uh, no, you can laugh at the people thinking like, this is it. This yeah, is going to be the last it. one. It's so big and such a blockbuster. We're done here. Like, nope, that's not how people react. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. What struck me about how they set up the American mentality in the World War I series was that going into this war, we thought of the Atlantic Ocean more as a moat that protected mm. us from all the conflicts going on in Europe. Yeah, that's true. You know, it was truly a transitional moat 
moment for America to go overseas and fight in a war. Uh, before that, it was like, well, don't mess with us and we'll stay out of your business. And this is the war that introduced a mechanized army into the battlefield, weapons that could cause massive amounts of casualties and wounded. Mm. And in the initial days, Americans took unfathomable losses because we didn't recognize the brutality of trench warfare. And the British were already three years into this mess. Yeah, you know, in fact, they remarked at how optimistic and well-fed the American soldiers were when they arrived. This series is great stuff indeed, and Forrest and I encourage you to check it out at The Great Courses Plus. Yeah, you and your family can get unlimited access to The Great Courses Plus and stream thousands of video and audio courses like how to build a better financial plan, control stress and make it work for you, live sustainably, and support a more regenerative world, uh, even play guitar like a pro. What is your purpose this year? What new things would you learn? Sign up for The Great Courses Plus and find out. Visit our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. You'll get a 14-day trial with unlimited access for free. You don't want to pass this up. So go now to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. My name is Jay. I'm in the woods of upstate New York. I'm sending this to Scott and Forrest of Astonishing Legends. There's something after me. I don't know what is I don't know what it is. Get back to the show. Get back to the show. Oh no, it's getting closer. It's down, it's down. Well, get a load of this because that person, one of the eyewitnesses, is in the episode, the Unsolved Mysteries episode, in the segment, but they are in silhouette. So this is their story. Around that time that Valentich disappeared, an eyewitness and his family were on their way back from an afternoon outing when they noticed something unusual in the sky. The eyewitnesses, who I said, yes, they, they wish to be anonymous for the uh, Unsolved Mysteries segment, but you can hear his voice, and he's silhouetted, so you can see him, but he's, he's giving his account, on camera in a way. The father states that he looked up in the sky and saw a lime green light about 1,000 to 2,000 feet above the aircraft. They sat there and watched it for a few seconds, and the green light got closer to the plane. He said that plane was coming down pretty steep. It's like at a 45-degree angle, and he thought it was going to crash. Well, this eyewitness account would support the theory that Valentich's plane had tangled with a UFO. However, no one in the family had seen his plane crash into Bass Strait because I think it ducked down behind some uh, landscape there. Yeah, the implication was that there was a mountain or a peak, I mean, in the reenactment. And this right, is one of the things right. that always makes me crazy about reenactments. <laughs> because I know. they're telling the story and you don't know if a visual detail is an accurate detail or just a way to accomplish something. But for whatever reason, yeah. that family, it seemed to be that they were implying that it went below a horizon line for them uh, before it right. would have made contact with the water. So they wouldn't have known if it was had gone down. We might have some insight about that later, but from the telling here, it doesn't seem like it was anything, you know, supernatural where it just vanished or they saw the green light subsume the the Cessna. They went out of sight, so they went yeah. out of visual range. But the green light itself is not oh, supernatural, yeah. but paranormal, <laughs> I guess. Uh, you always are telling me the difference between those. Yes, I would say paranormal because it, if you look at it several ways, it could be natural phenomenon like the green flash or the brown mountain lights, perhaps. They're more paranormal because it's it's perhaps uh, some natural phenomenon that we don't understand yet. Even like electronic fog and another aviation weirdness story, that might be a natural weirdo phenomenon, but we just don't understand it yet. It's beyond our science. Yes, and we did we covered that in case you're wondering why he brought that up. That is in our back yes, catalog. Yes, yes. Yeah, that was episode 64. 
while back there, yeah. Bruce Kernan. So look for that. It's back called in the Electronic fun days. Thought. Yeah, back in the fun days. Yeah. This is episode 199 right now. So we're, that's we're, crazy. It is crazy. I guess we'll just be here till we drop dead. <laughs> uh, I hope not. Well, here's another interesting account that is covered in the episode. Six weeks later, Roy Manifold, a plumber and amateur photographer, had come forward with photographs that had captured something compelling over Bass Strait. On the evening of Ballantich's flight, October 21st, Manifold had set up his camera at Cape Otway to get shots of the sunset, almost directly under Valentich's flight path. Now, this is from the UM interview. Roy states that everything was fine setting up, doing his usual camera setup. Uh, he had his camera on automatic exposure, and he took six photos of the sun disappearing into the sea, which you can see on the, uh, well, I can, uh, on the first five photo prints are what look like orbs, but uh, very may well be lens flares. But uh, because I'm, I'm just thinking weirdness of uh, scanning the entire frame for weirdness, I see what look like orbs, but readily admit they're probably just uh, lens flares. However, on the sixth and last photo, in the upper right quadrant is what looks like a strange black smudge or blemish. I guess it's like a misshaped oval of sorts with some less opaque and, and lighter parts to it. And then there's a dark crescent-shaped smudging uh, off to the right of it. I spent maybe 15 minutes thinking about how I was going to describe it. It's kind of hard, but it just looks like a black smudge. It almost has kind of a, a lima bean vibe that um. <laughs> there you go i wish it was more peanut shaped yeah. like oak island yeah uh, it would be easier to describe or the island of maui yeah it's just a weird kind of a smudge you might not think anything of it now and to the left of that when you blow it up you look at it closely uh to the left of the main oval blotch are some blue gray discoloration marks so Roy Manifold at first, of course, thought, well, it was just a, a mark from the film developing, you know, some kind of smudge that was on the negative. Then he remembered that he took that shot at the exact time Valentich disappeared because it was in the news. And he's, he just wonders to himself, like, okay, is there a connection here? What's going on? Now, from Robert Stack's narration, quote, a leading Australian photo lab found neither dirt nor damage on the negative, determining that the strange mark was actually in the picture end quote. The segment goes on to say that a team of UFO researchers later sent the film to the U.S. for computer analysis, and their findings showed the smudge to be a solid metallic object that was enveloped in a cloud of exhaust, appearing to be about a mile from the camera. Of course, uh, you can't leave it there. So, <laughs> However, as Stack's narration suggests, a second more recent analysis concluded that the mark is in all probability a film-developing error. Yeah, you know, I'm staring at it now in Photoshop, blowing it up and looking at it. You know, there's some, there's some good, <laughs> yeah. high-quality scans of it online that you mm -hmm. can find pretty easy. We'll have a link to it, of course. But um, if it's a mile away, it's huge. That's the only thing I would say there. I mean, it is... That's the other weird thing about it. Yeah, it's massive. What's freaky, if you watch the episode of Unsolved Mysteries, is that they'll show you the different uh, filters, I guess. You know, we're talking about the 90s here, so it's not as advanced as what we have now. But it's weird that you can see beyond the black smudginess of it and that there's something underneath there. And what have we learned now of all the uh, accounts of UFO sightings that sometimes there's weird gas and exhaust? Uh, that one that ended up on uh, FLIR from the Chilean Navy, I think? Yeah. Do you remember that video from a long time ago? Yeah, that was really cool. You can cool. see heat exhaust coming out of their own Tic Tac object. Yeah. There seems to be all manner and kinds of craft 
exhibiting strange properties, you could say. So when you look at the filtered uh, images of the computer analysis, it, it looks pretty strange. But uh, then again, it's easy to dismiss when you just say uh, it's probably a film developing error. Now, I don't know what their proof is of that other than just to say that, and that kind of dismisses it for a lot of people. But Roy Manifold believes there's something more to it. As he says, quote, unfortunately, I didn't see it, and I didn't hear anything that particular night either. First time I've had something on any of my printing, and I've done thousands of photographs, and without any incidents of anything like that on them, end quote from him. And that doesn't certainly you know, make it impossible that something like that couldn't happen with some kind of smudge or, uh, you know, a film defect. But this is chemical film. This is uh, the film that you used to take to the processor, uh, to, you know, to the Rite Aid, and they would process it for you, get your prints back. And certainly Roy's a more advanced uh, amateur photographer. He's serious about it. He's taken thousands of photographs with a pretty good camera. So he's just saying it, it's pretty unusual. Plus the first photo lab checked the negs and found, uh, I'm sure with a microscope, that there wasn't any kind of damage on them that whatever that image was, it was taken by the camera. Yeah, I'm not. I'm on the fence about that thing because I can't. <laughs> it's definitely not an insect or an animal or a bird or anything like that. It's, right. There's right. no question that it's not something like that. But it, you know, know. and it's up in the sky. It's suspended, yeah. and you can see a trail behind <laughs> it of some kind, which is interesting. Right. Right. You know, that's what's weird about it when you look at the different filters. That there is uh, like dithering. There is uh, some smudging of the smudge where it looks blended almost. Uh, I, I can't remember the art term, but it kind of fades out a little bit. And maybe that's the exhaust they're talking about. But yeah. as your very good friend, Scott, I must say, that is the area that uh, you are most niggly about, most uh, skeptical about, I would say is photographic images. I think that it's a lot easier to produce an orb on camera than most people think it is. <laughs> but even though I used to joke yeah. about orbs when we started right. out, I still think probably eight out of 10 if not more, yeah. orbs are lens flare. I really do. Right. But there are ones that I've seen since we started that absolutely have no relationship to. It's locked off camera and in a room where all the lights are fixed. Yeah. And if something is moving around then, that's like, okay, yes, there's dust and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, some of that stuff I saw in the Sally house, there was no question it was under its own control. Yeah, it's freaky. And, and then the other weird thing is that when you've seen a lot of video for us, it's like, okay, so maybe it's a bug, you can say that's the easiest thing to go to or a piece of dust. But when you see what looks like a point of light, get absorbed by a person, like yeah. it goes into a person. Yeah. And then comes out of them and is obscured briefly when that happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. that's weird. It didn't go behind them. You see it uh, being subsumed. Yeah. I'm not sure that's right. Dissolving into the person and it comes back out of them. It, that, that's pretty freaky. So yes, it is. The problem here is that a lot of these shots uh, have the sun in them. So anytime you're facing the sun, you're liable to get refracted light and, uh, and orbs and, uh, bouncing off the multiple layers of glass, the, the glass elements in the lens itself. So yeah. a lot of things could be going on. Well, let's look at other sightings that coincided apparently with Valentich's disappearance. Now, there are a bunch of good articles on Above Top Secret's website uh, about the Valentich case. And two that stood out are from our now go-to guy there, UFO blog author Mirage Man, whose article helped shape and inform our Warminster Thing episode. And another guy, Oz Weatherman, who's written up a comprehensive account of the Valentich incident. And, and his article here is dated November 7, 2008, and that's on the ATS site. And it states, uh, some further interesting notes to consider. Aside from the fact that this case of possible interaction and banishing happened 
while in actual communication with aviation authorities. So that's kind of rare in itself. That's significant. But also, there are more than 50 separate observations of UFO activity in the area of Valentich's disappearance in the weeks leading up to the event, with some coinciding precisely. 50 accounts. So I don't know if that's a flap, but it's certainly weird that uh, his is nestled right in there. That's a lot of activity. I mean, it's a lot of activity. Yeah, I mean, being separately reported. Now people will say like, well, if it happened, those reports came after his disappearance. People saw it in the news and they got inspired or maybe they just thought, you know, their imaginations got ramped up. But this was before he disappeared, apparently. Now, according to uh, Oz Weatherman's article. So another strange aspect of this, four witnesses claim to have seen an object that seemed to be sitting on top of a light aircraft in Valentich's reported airspace. So that's a possible confirmation. Other reports of aerial phenomenon activity worth noting from Oz Weatherman's article are as follows. Twin cigar-shaped objects were witnessed moving west to east over Victoria, changing from silver to white. And several witnesses observed this until they disappeared behind the Cape Otway Hills. So some parts of this uh, territory are hilly, and uh, this phenomenon or objects uh, uh, visually can go out of sight. But that's interesting here to note. It changed color from silver to white, and also cigar shape. Keep a note of that. One witness actually photographed an object shooting up out of the water at tremendous speed near Cape Otway Lighthouse. We've now touched upon one of Scott's favorite types of uh, anomalies, USOs. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the craft that go underwater, <laughs> which is connected to the whole Tic Tac thing and uh, what Commander That's Faber right. saw in the now famous story. Well, it's a versatile craft, much like the Lotus James Bond uh, drove in uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. <laughs> and it actually went underwater, right? It, it could yeah, travel for a and bit. and I, I think uh, Elon Musk bought that car after it was discovered <laughs> in a storage <laughs> unit and had, where it had been forgotten. Also, that car is said to have inspired the uh, Cybertruck the design. That's right. Yes, yes. I remember this now. Well, yeah. okay. Getting back to that photograph of the object shooting up out of the water, this event occurred only 21 minutes before Valentich first reported the object. Now, there were witnesses in Frankston, a southeast Melbourne suburb, who reported seeing a large cigar-shaped object hovering over their area. Two separate sets of witnesses, a couple and two teenagers, reported seeing green lights in a starfish-shaped object. The couple actually witnessed the object moving over Bass Strait in the direction of where Valentich was flying. Okay, so the takeaways here are the commonly reported shape of the aircraft in these sightings, cigar-shaped, which seems to jive with Valentich's description of his unknown craft being long and, and possibly cylindrical. I don't know if you saw that, Scott, that adjective there, but yes, long. And so maybe you could say cigar-shaped. So that's a common visual element here. And these separate reports from the couple and the teenagers both reporting seeing green lights, just like Valentich described. And maybe the starface-shaped object has a relation to the strangely blob-shaped object photographed by Roy Manifold. Possibly. Yeah. That's a, that's a thin one there, but uh, who knows? This is all weird, but it all seems to be happening in the same area around the same time. So Oz Weatherman's article goes on to describe what he calls the most startling report, which seems to verify and give more insight to the shadowed eyewitnesses featured in the Unsolved Mysteries episode. And his article describes it thusly. On October 11, 2000, Melbourne's Herald Sun reported that fresh light had been shed on the case of the Victorian pilot, an Apollo Bay man, uh, the area near where the pilot experienced problems, said that he... His son and two nieces 
observed Volantich's Cessna and a green light hovering above it as they hunted rabbits in Cape Otway. Now, the man had not come forward previously for fear of ridicule, but he placed the aircraft as going down off Cape Marengo, just southeast of Apollo Bay, between 5 to 15 kilometers offshore. And this was a considerable distance from the original search area. There's another account that's also in the in the article here. I think what I just read to you was uh, somebody finding another source for that and posting it in the comments thread to Oz Weatherman's article here. But uh, the original piece said uh, pretty much the same thing, that a niece looked up, she saw the green light and called to her uncle, what is that light? And the uncle saw it and he said, well, that's an airplane light. And then the niece said, well, no, the light is above the airplane. And Frederick was the only pilot flying in the area at the time. So the side of the airplane and the object was uh, lost when it flew behind the hills. Okay, so that's where I'm saying that uh, this is, I believe, that account that you see the guy giving in the Unsolved Mysteries episode segment. That he's really the family that's that was out on the outing. And now we know here that they were uh, hunting rabbits. And... <laughs> Uh, what they saw. So, you know, I'll can't hear that without yes. laughing. Yeah. Uh, I'll do well. <laughs> uh, so this is, but it lines up. So I'm going to put this together and that that's the guy both times uh, wanted to be anonymous because people would just think he and his family were nuts. Yeah. But they reported that light being separate from the aircraft and above it and the aircraft going down behind the hills. But the reason they came forward here, it says, is that the information bore on their conscience. So they thought they knew there's an explanation that they could be giving. And as crazy as it sounds and as and maybe as crazy it makes them sound, they felt compelled to give the information forward to add to the investigation. So basically, as this anecdote concludes, you know, Oz says, this sighting completely rules out all speculations and fictitious stories other than that a UFO was involved in the pilot's disappearance. And other points that he would have us consider, the Australian Air Force received 11 reports on the night in question. Many of the witnesses observed similar things, if not describing exactly the same thing. Now, uh, here's another thing that we'll get to when we take a look at Frederick himself. Uh, Valentich apparently acted out of character before the event, and he did not uh, supply a flight plan, although I've, I've read that uh, he did in other reports. And several sightings of UFOs were reported before Frederick's event here. And here's another odd thing to consider. The recording of the conversation between Valentich and uh, Melbourne FSU mysteriously disappeared, or they said they lost it. Now, I read an account where they let Frederick's father, Guido, hear it because it's the last words from his son. They gave him a tape of it, actually. And I actually have not tried to track down his, his yeah. or the family or anything. I'm I'm kind of right. presuming that he's no longer with us. I'm not sure. But um, I, I do know that according to the report, which we're going to be getting to, that they did actually give him a tape. I've, I've seen the letter mm. where they indicated that they were giving it to him and that they don't usually release that. They consider it confidential. No. But they did in his case because they felt bad for him. Yeah, it's possibly the last time he could hear his son's voice, even though in that strange state. Now, it's not totally panicked, but he did sound concerned. And I, you know, as a, uh, as a prospective father, I'd want to hear that too. Yeah. Well, back to what's featured in the Unsolved Mysteries app, air traffic advisor, Stephen Roby comes back on to state that there's been no recovery of any wreckage. Uh, you know, Frederick's gone. So we're left with an open case, which sounds like he did encounter something very mysterious. And there's no other conclusion that he can come to other than that. Yeah. And then the segment ends with a, a touching moment of final comments from Frederick's dad, Guido. Now, 
we have to remember that this man lost his son suddenly and tragically, and as an insult to injury, is left with speculation that his son is responsible for an elaborate hoax or suicide, and is left without any answers or closure. Just a mystery, and a hope he'll see his son again one day. As Guido says in the interview, it is hard. I'm very sentimental. I'm keeping everything that belonged to him. Even the motor car he was driving to the airport, I'm still driving. And I believe that my son possibly one day will come back. And this is a dream that might come true one day. Well, it's time to look at another major component of this story, and that is the young man himself. And because so many people have put their observations about this and their conclusions based on what they thought he was like and what his actions were as either being a, a real event or maybe something misidentified or perhaps just outright hoaxed. Who was or who is Frederick Valentich? Yeah, he's a fascinating human being. And at this point, I feel like I know him. And that's a result of this government report that we're about to talk about. Now, just to get this out of the way, and because this file is hard to find, and also because we transcribe our episodes now, this report is on file with the National Archives of Australia under the following control number, V116-783-0001. And then also associated with it is barcode 104-91375. Got it. I memorized okay, it. Okay, good. Yeah. I know no, no I'm one ki- is I'm kidding. tracking that. But kidding. listen, hey, no. you can go to the transcript. You can look it up. <laughs> we like to leave everything up and have people come back later. And if they want to find it, they can find it. We're going to have That's directions, true. yeah, in the show notes about how to find it for yourself. We may even be able to construct a link to it, but the archive site changes from time to time. So that might not be permanent, even if we can point to it. So... Now you have the name of it. Now, and of course, we have to start by thanking the Astonishing Research Corps, which we should have done earlier in the show tonight, for all the stuff they dug up on this legend. A lot of that we're going to lean on heavily for part two, but uh, we also have to talk about the origin of this report that I'm going to be working from here, because when you look for the deeper stuff, you can't do much better than a full 315-page report on the incident from the National Archives of Australia. And the file has a very simple title. It's DSJ, which was the registration number, Cape Otway to King Island, 21 October 1978, hyphen, aircraft missing, and then in parentheses, Valentich. We probably wouldn't have found this without stumbling across a July 2012 article in the Advertiser, that's an Adelaide newspaper, that was written by Miles Kemp. And in this article, he details the work of prominent Australian UFO researcher Keith Basterfield. Now, he's been investigating the case since it happened and had long been searching for the government's official file on it. And it turns out that he accidentally stumbled across it, the hard copy, not a digital one, when he was working on research for something else. Since then, the entire file has been uploaded to the archives website and it is publicly available now, but it's still nearly impossible to find if you don't know how to use their search queries on their page. And Mr. Basterfield, according to Kemp's article, knew the file was real because it had been seen on a desk by someone back in 1982, but then it vanished. So he accidentally found it, and then it got uploaded, Mm. and then we downloaded it, the whole thing, which took a long time. It's not huge. It's about 100 (laughs) megabytes, but the servers, Mm. I guess, on the other end are not very quick. It took me like 20 minutes to pull it down, even though I'm 
got a, a gigabit fiber connection. So, but yeah. we have we have the whole ding, thing. Ding. Which is cool. yeah. yeah, they have a phone modem. But in their defense, it's twenty eight eight. Yeah, exactly. Not the old fourteen. You've got a UFO report. <laughs> no one's going <laughs> to even know what that is relating to. It's, it's too I long know. ago. But no, yeah. that it's very cool and it's great that it's out there. And we wouldn't know about these things if it wasn't for the dogged pursuit by certain individuals like Mr. Basterfield. So hats off to you, sir. Yes, absolutely. And and like I said, this report is three hundred and fifteen pages and I read every single one of them. I thought I would get bored with it, but I didn't. It was a real page turner. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I will say is that a lot of the investigators who took handwritten notes have some of the worst handwriting I've ever seen. So <laughs> it was like reading yeah. a bunch of doctor's prescriptions in some sections, but fortunately most <laughs> right. of them wound up being typed up later and there's some redundant information in it. But once you get through looking at it, you really have a feel for what uh, Frederick Valentich was like and uh, right. what the people in his life were like. It's always such a great, you know, and this is just a little aside, it's such a great thing to be like, oh, this seems interesting. And then a few days later, you you feel like you know everything about it after really digging down yeah. on it. It's a cool feeling to collect that knowledge and, and dive into something like this. Well, that's what I was saying is that there's a lot more to the case and, and really a lot more to who Frederick was. But maybe he's still alive. I mean, I, I don't mean to be flip about that, but some people believe he may have been absconded with or went to go join other beings and that maybe somewhere he still is around. If you believe any of this at all. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, uh, why not? That's what I'm saying. I'm Vince Moore. Assistant Scoutmaster with Troop 500 in Depew, New York. And when I'm looking for scary stories to tell my scouts around this campfire, I listen to Astonishing Legends. Coming back to the report itself, I do want to just mention a couple of things about it, what it's characterized by. It has a lot of witness statements in it. It has investigator notes. It has transcripts, uh, multiple copies of transcripts of the radio conversation, all of which line up that has a flight plan there. And it does indicate that a flight plan was filed, by the way, although there's folks that say there mm -hmm. wasn't. But it, according to this right. report, it was filed. And, and we you can see a picture of it. It has a meteorological report. There were five investigators involved with the accident investigation, uh, one lead investigator and four other ones. And then in addition to that, there was a radar expert and a human factor expert who took a look at uh, Valentich's background and tried to make an assessment as to uh, reasons that he might have initiated his own disappearance or, or fabricated mm -hmm. it in some way or another. And obviously there's speculation that he committed suicide. Additionally, the other thing that happened in the, in the big picture you get here was that there was just so much press around this. It really yeah. blew up in the newspapers. It was sensationalized. Information went out all over the world. Uh, poor Guido Valentich, his dad, was harassed endlessly by scam artists and people wanting to ask questions and um, potential, not just contactees and folks like that. There's there's a group right. of people like that, but also people who were uh, more on the fringe and really wanting to take him down a rabbit hole as to what happened with his son. Not mm -hmm. necessarily based in reality, although, you know, where do you draw the line when it comes to talking about this kind of stuff? But it was, it was difficult. So what happened was by the time the report was done, essentially four years after the accident, they made a decision not to release it to anybody. They only gave it 
to the owner of the aircraft, uh, and there was a name associated there, but it's not really pertinent. I guess it's just he was the one mm -hmm. that owned it, like you would own a yacht that was chartered or something like that. The operator, which is Southern Air Services, they were responsible for maintaining the aircraft and making it available for uh, pilots who would pay money to take it places. Then Guido, obviously Frederick's father, and the coroner. And those were the only people that got copies of the report. Uh, this was in May of 1982, and they decided that it wasn't going to be given out anymore. And we already explained a little bit how it became rediscovered when we talked about uh, Keith Basterfield. But it's an amazing thing to have been able to dig up. So it, it, here's the first thing I want to do. Before we actually talk about Valencic, I did want to mention a little bit more specific details about the aircraft. As we said, it's a Cessna 182L. This is a very popular plane. They call it the Skylane, S-K-Y-L-A-N-E. And we did mention mm. in the cold open, I think, or early on, that it's a four-seater, but you can add two additional seats in the back for kids in the baggage area if you want. So you can actually get six people into this, not six adults, but uh, four adults and two kids. It's had the same engine in it forever. I think, as according to Wikipedia, something like 23 or 24,000 of them have been built over the years, although not yeah. continuously. It's still in production but there were a few years where it wasn't being built, two or three here and there. The most popular plane in this category in the world is the 172, mm -hmm. which is a little bit of a smaller yeah. aircraft. And in fact, uh, JFK Jr. was flying a 182 mm. when his plane went down in April of 1998. And yeah. we'll be talking about that in part two because some people wonder if the same thing could have happened to Valentich. Well, the model below that, the Cessna 172 Skyhawk, yeah. a lot of people will recognize that by sight and maybe not know uh, its uh, brand designation here. The Cessna 172 is the most successful aircraft in history because uh, if you go by, uh, you know, since it was uh, first flown in 1955, more 172s have been built than any other aircraft in the world. Isn't that something? That's insane. That's a lot of airplanes. It's the Toyota Corolla of aircraft, I guess. Yeah. I don't know what the most uh, produced uh, automobile is. You might know. I used to know. Uh, originally, it was a Volkswagen yeah. Bug. Then the Ford right. Escort passed it, which was well <laughs> yeah, over right. a million being built. By the way, you don't see... Yeah. You still see bugs. No. You don't see many escorts still running. Um, there's a reason for that. Yeah, there's a reason yeah. for that. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know now what holds the record for most produced car. But interesting. But a very common aircraft. Yes. The larger version here, the 182 a Skyline. And I think it was a Skyline two. That's what he was flying. It's a good plane for training. He was fairly well familiar with it. Although a lot of people will say, well, he wasn't that good of a flyer, but. Uh, certainly for this flight, he'd done it before, and uh, there should have been no problems. Yeah, and that plane today runs about half a million dollars. Um, it was probably less then, but it might have been the equivalent of that for the time. Uh, yeah, he was a little green. You know, 150 hours was yeah. his experience, but it's not a ton of experience. And and no. uh, Frederick was only 20 years old when this happened. Right. And, um, you know, I can't even remember what I was doing when I was 20, but... Not passing flight exams. No, definitely not. No. Definitely not. But it, let, let's talk a little bit about his qualifications, which you already mentioned once. He had a class four, what was at the time called a class four instrument rating, which he had gotten on May 11th of the same year. So that was about uh, five and a half months before he disappeared. He had no flight restrictions, to be clear. And it, now mm -hmm. my understanding is, and I had to dig a little on this outside of the report, but uh, that the class four instrument rating is now called a night VFR rating. Uh, VFR mm -hmm. means visual flight rules. 
And uh, that can come with various endorsements, kind of like a driver's license. It allows you to drive something in addition to a passenger vehicle, for example. And in reading the report, one of the things I read, the endorsement, one of the endorsements that he really wanted was the twin endorsement. So he could fly a twin-engined aircraft as opposed to just a single-engine aircraft. The irony there being that twin-engine aircraft is technically safer than a single-engine aircraft because you have a backup if you lose an engine uh, as opposed to a single engine. but. Uh, that was one of the endorsements that he really wanted. Now, in terms of visual flight rules, uh, people that are plane junkies already know what those are, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this uh, little section from Wikipedia here. This is a set of regulations under which a pilot operates an aircraft in weather conditions generally clear enough to allow the pilot to see where the aircraft is going. Specifically, the weather must be better than basic VFR weather minima, meaning in visual meteorological conditions, VMC, which is a term that comes up in the report, as specified in the rules of the relevant aviation authority, in this case, which would be in Australia, the pilot must be able to operate the aircraft with visual reference to the ground and by visually avoiding obstructions and other aircraft. If weather is less than VMC, again, meaning visual meteorological conditions, pilots are required to use instrument flight rules, or IFR, and operation of the aircraft will primarily be through referencing the instruments rather than visual reference. In a control zone, a VFR flight may obtain a clearance from air traffic control to operate as special VFR. So what's interesting to me about this, and I learned this a long time ago, back when I first got into flight simulator. I don't know anything about flying a plane, but... (laughs) And I've thought about this. I've flown a lot since, uh, even since I was a kid. My parents got divorced when I was relatively young, and for a while I was living in North Carolina, and my dad was in Denver, and I would go see him every year. And I was doing that thing where I was flying alone as a kid. A lot of Mm -hmm. flying. And... I remember these, you know, huge jets coming down in foggy conditions. And yeah. that's the thing you have to think about. How do they find the runway? And that's being instrument rated. Of course, now there's all kinds of sophisticated technology that helps these uh, large commercial aircraft come in on their own, land themselves in some cases. But that would be enough to freak me out pretty good. Like trying to land in heavy fog where you can't yeah. see the lights or anything. That's when you have to be instrument rated, which Valentich was not. He was VFR rated, but he was VFR rated for night. That's what the class right. four meant. An important distinction, because that's basically saying, well, you're, you're good enough to fly in the daytime when everything's clear and you can see, but you're also good enough to do that in the dark, as long as it's clear. So yeah, that's, exactly. I mean, that's my understanding of it. And I'm sure we're going to be hearing from all kinds of experts about how much oversimplifying I'm doing here. But anyway, that's my perception of what he was qualified to do. The other thing to remember here that I think is important is that it was not dark. He was flying at the end of the day. He took off a little after 6, but at that time, the sun was not setting until 8.50, and it didn't get dark until about 9.20. This whole thing was over well before then. So whatever Mm -hmm. happened, he wasn't necessarily having to operate with the night VFR. Another thing that's important to note is that he did not request that the lights be on at King Island. So that, a lot of folks seem to say, well, why weren't the lights on? Why didn't he turn the lights on? Well, if he was coming in after dark, that would have been significant. But as as far as I can tell, he probably thought he could land just fine while the sun was still low on the horizon, but still up. If you're going to believe the the Roy Manifold connection, uh, the photographer on the beach there, that's what he was photographing. So he was there well before the sun set. He wanted to catch the sun dipping it, you know, right as it dips into the water. So it goes below the horizon. So the sun had not yet set. Right, exactly. So um, on on the day of the flight, Valentich actually obtained a meteorological briefing from the Moorabbin briefing office in the afternoon. 
And then at 6.23 p.m., he submitted his flight plan for a night VMC, Visual Meteorological Conditions. So I, I guess my takeaway is that he was qualified to fly uh, from basic conditions to conditions of increasing variability up to a certain point, what he's certified for. And he, of course, would be trying to get further and further into those certifications to instrument to whatever other ratings he could get and these other endorsements. But he was fairly early on in his flying career. So he's got this, the most basic license, really. But mm-hmm. by the same token... Uh, he's got 150 hours of flying, and that's a lot of time in a, in the plane. Right, right. It's not like he just went solo for the first time on this flight. So as Forrest mentioned on this route, he was going from Moravin to King Island by approaching Cape Ottaway and then turning there at the end. And uh, we already explained uh, where these places are. King Island is 424 square miles. Uh, with about 1,500 to 2,000 year-round residents. Uh, These days it has a wind farm. I think it's called the Huxley Wind Farm, if I remember correctly, and an amusement park that looks like a lot of fun. Uh, There's there's only about, uh, there's only, I guess, three towns. Uh, Forgive me, King Island, if I got this wrong. There's Curry, which is its administrative center. Grassy, which is on the east side of it, uh, which is a former mining community. And then there's a village called uh, Naracoopa, about 12 miles from Curry, that is a vacation destination which looks beautiful, by the way. For this whole flight, he was going to be flying below 5,000 feet, with Cape Otway being a waypoint around 41 minutes in, and then he'd have 28 minutes more to fly to King Island uh, for a total duration of around 138 minutes. He was carrying 84 gallons of fuel. He had topped off before he took off. They filled it to the brim, is what the fuel guy said. Um, In fact, we'll be talking about a witness account from him shortly. The range of the 182L is just over 1,000 miles, and its cruising speed max is 170 miles. Mm -hmm. And so it was well within range for this flight. And after topping the tank off at 610 at Moorabbin, he departed at 619. And once he was in the air, he initiated radio contact with Melbourne Flight Service Unit, or FSU. We might just call it FSU from here on out, just so you know who that is. And we have the transcript in. At 7 o'clock, he saw his first waypoint, which he called out on the radio, of Cape Otway. Six minutes and 14 seconds later, he saw something strange. And that's when that transcript started that you've heard excerpts from already. Now, uh, the report, like we said, in 1982, uh, disappeared for a long time. There was a reporter who apparently asked for it in uh, September of 1989, a woman named Denise Dalgliesh, who was uh, filed, I guess, a Freedom of Information request on it which I don't think that works exactly the same way as it does in the States, but there's something similar mm-hmm. obviously going on in Australia. Yeah, uh, Because she was speculating that Mr. Valentich had possibly committed suicide and that there mm-hmm. may have been personal problems that might have contributed to that. But in the investigation, that idea, quote, could not be substantiated apparently. It's not clear to me because the report had disappeared and then it didn't surface again until uh, 2012. I don't know why it was that she was able to see this then and it, it wasn't out into mm-hmm. the wild. I think maybe just because it wasn't digitized. Maybe it was something that she saw in person. But we're going to talk about his frame of mind and, and the possibility of suicide and what we think about that. Well, of course, this thing is blowing up in the news. It's kind of a tabloid story and it's making international news all over the world. This is before the internet, so it's going the old-fashioned way in print. Uh, but people are still finding out about it. And it's, you know, it's a big enough story that Unsolved Mysteries picked up on it. But uh, in addition to that, we have, of course, UFO researchers who are interested. And in December of 1981, again, this information all comes from the report, John West, mm-hmm. a former director of the Sydney UFO Investigation Center, 
wrote to the flight control officer at uh, Telemarine Airport in, I still don't know how to say this, Victoire, V-I-C-T-O-I-R-E, <laughs> yeah. requesting a Just transcript. Just the French way. Victoire. Yeah. Uh, requesting a transcript of the radio conversation between Valentich and Control and asked in his letter, quote, I would also appreciate the official and perhaps unofficial explanation of what did happen to Valentich on that particular flight, as was observed by flight controllers on that evening in question. Well, they responded and said, yeah, we're investigating it. It's what we do. This is not for litigation, but just to develop better accident prevention. And then they explained that investigations take a long time. I think the implication being that it could be years. And then regarding the unofficial explanation, I love this last paragraph. This is on uh, page 48 of the 320-page report. Please also note there is no unofficial explanation of what happened to the aircraft. The known facts will be included in the report if the decision is made to release one. Very sincerely, J.C. Sandercock. Now, Sandercock is the lead investigator on the team looking into everything. So that letter was dated, I think, uh, January 28th of 1982. Now, one of the most interesting things about the report is the actual, is the, within the report, there's the briefer aircraft accident investigation summary report. This is a short thing that details all the important facts and indicates the owner of the aircraft, the operator, their address, uh, all the circumstances that they can come up with. And in fact, uh, it says under degree of injury, presumed fatal. Now, in this summary of events that is the brief of the big picture, on uh, page seven of it, there's a description of everything going on. And I'm interested in sharing something from that here. At 1723 hours on 21 October 1978, Mr. Frederick Valintich lodged a flight plan at Moravin Briefing Office for a private night VMC flight in VHDSJ to King Island via Cape Otway and returned to Moravin at altitude below 5,000 feet. ETD, I don't know what that means, Moravin, was specified, I guess estimated time of departure from uh, mm-hmm. Moravin was specified as 1,745 hours with estimated time interviews of 41 minutes to Cape Otway and 28 minutes to King Island. Fuel endurance was shown at 300 minutes. He discussed the weather forecast with the Moravin briefing officer, but he did not make any request for aerodrome lighting to be switched on for his arrival at King Island. It was established that King Island Flight Service Unit had closed. Therefore, it would be necessary to cancel SAR to Melbourne Flight Service by telephone on arrival. I don't know what SAR is, but obviously if King Island's uh, flight service is closed, he's having to deal with the next closest one that's still open. Yeah. He told the briefing officer he was going to King Island to pick up passengers. This is an important fact to keep in mind as the investigation unfolds. He was not certain of how many, but would telephone Melbourne Flight Service with his estimated time of departure, King Island, and details of passengers and SAR watch before leaving King Island. At 1810 hours, the aircraft was refueled to capacity. The pilot did not leave the aircraft during refueling, and the aircraft departed Moorabbin at 1819 hours. Two-way radio communications were then established with Melbourne Flight Service, who were responsible for maintaining a communications and SAR watch on the aircraft during the course of its flight. Okay, I got tired of not knowing what SAR means, so I just looked it up. It, apparently, <laughs> it means uh, search and rescue. So I guess that's just to oh, keep an yes. eye in case something happens. So now right. I know what that is. At 1900 hours and uh, 29 seconds, the pilot of VHDSJ reported position as Cape Otway. And at 1906 and 14 seconds, the pilot asked Melbourne Flight Service for known traffic below 5,000 feet. 
he was told there was no known traffic. All right, and this is one of the sentences that fascinates me. The pilot mm -hmm. then proceeded to describe in detail the various maneuvers of apparently another aircraft or flying device operating in close vicinity to his aircraft. Now, what's fascinating about that sentence is the word apparently was clearly covered up and retyped with whiteout or uh, liquid paper. For those of you that have been on computers <laughs> for the past two decades and don't know what that is, when you would make a mistake and you didn't, and you wrote it in pen or it was on your, uh, you were typing it up, which this was clearly typed and you needed to fix it. You had this little bottle of white fluid and you would put it over the word yeah. that was bad and then just write on top of it or type over it. Yeah, you'd have to blow on it. And wasn't that invented by Michael Nesmith of the Monkees? Oh, I heard uh, his that mother? it was. I forgot about that. Is that a rumor? Yeah. I don't know. I can't substantiate that. I think that. it's true. Yeah. I'm going to go with true. But uh, yeah, his mother was an executive secretary and uh, she wanted a better way because back then you, it was really hard to correct your mistakes. You had to retype the whole page again or you could maybe try and scrape it out. But those, they had, uh, uh, you know, those wheeled, typewriter erasers and uh, they didn't yeah. really work and they had a brush on the other end. So yeah, so she invented liquid paper or it was purchased by Papermate, I believe, and named uh, liquid paper, her her formulation, which was uh, I think white paint and fingernail polish and some other stuff. She made in her kitchen, made a mint. All I know is they banned it at my high school because kids were sniffing it. <laughs> oh, um, of course. Anyway, <sighs> but listen to this sentence again. The pilot then proceeded to describe in detail the various maneuvers of apparently another aircraft or flying device operating in close vicinity to his aircraft. Yeah. What in all this whole report, not the 320-page report, but the summarized report here that's uh, eight or nine pages, that's the only word that's corrected, the apparently. So it's clearly they were putting a lot of weight on the mm. idea that this was a UFO or something. And I, I wonder what the word was. So it's like somebody looked at it and went, oh, don't say that. Say apparently. And, yeah. and they changed yeah. it. Yeah. Continuing here, during the course of his description, he stated his altitude to be 4,500 feet, and at 1,911 hours and 52 seconds, he reported that the engine of VHDSJ was running rough, but he intended to continue to King Island. Melbourne Flight Service declared the alert phase, as Forrest said earlier, and initiated action to recall a King Island Flight Service officer to duty and activate King Island Airport emergency procedures. At 1,912 hours and 28 seconds, communications from VHDSJ ceased abruptly, and no further communications were received. The distress phase was declared at 1,933 hours when the aircraft failed to arrive at King Island, and an extensive ground, sea, and air search was immediately initiated. The search was terminated at 1,900 hours on 25th October, that's four days later, 1978, after divers and widespread search efforts failed to locate any wreckage or information of the whereabouts of the aircraft and its occupant. Uh, there's additional investigation here, a little bit more summary, that's a good idea of the big picture. And it gives you an idea of what the investigators were thinking as they went through this and all the avenues they explored. It says, the available evidence indicates that the pilot, Frederick Valentich, was rapidly running out of time. He had told his family, girlfriend, and associates that he only had one subject left to pass to gain his commercial pilot license, and he was currently mm. going to instructional classes twice a week to study that subject. His father was assisting him financially to obtain his commercial license. The names of the ground training organizations he was attending were not established. On two occasions, he sat for and failed all five CPL, commercial pilot license, subjects. And during July 1978, sat for three CPL subjects and failed them. He had penetrated Sydney Control Zone during a flight in July 1978. And just prior to this flight, he had received a counseling letter from the New South Wales region. So just to explain that a little bit, because I did. It's there's more on that later in the report. 
that means he flew into restricted airspace. He was not supposed to, and he got yeah. in trouble, and they directed him to essentially get out, uh, but he got in trouble for that. Prior to this flight, Valentich had made known his intention to fly to King Island for some time, and it was generally believed by his family, girlfriend, and his immediate acquaintances that the purpose of the flight was to bring back crayfish. Now, as a North Carolinian, I will tell you <laughs> the crayfish is a tiny little yeah. freshwater shrimp yeah. type thing that lives in a creek inland. However, yeah. after seeing this thing about the crayfish over and over and over and looking it up, I determined that in Australia, it's a lobster. A saltwater uh -huh. lobster, to be clear. Uh, so we had a big argument. Uh, I, I can't remember if it's among our friends, uh, our circle of friends, uh, or on social media, certainly. Depending regionally where you are, they're called crawdads, yes. crayfish, mud bugs in Texas. Yep. And then this is the part where you you, you say that to your friends. Like, we don't say that there. And then you'll, you'll get uh, people like our friend Travis who says, that, no, no, we call them mud bugs. Yeah. <laughs> and then people even the same region disagree with each other. Like, no, we never say that. So, yes, many names for the tiny ones. And this, I know this sounds like a silly tangent, but they're looking for a reason why he's flying this in the first place. Yeah. What is the reason? And it, because he yeah. had mentioned picking up passengers, now we're talking about picking up crayfish. Uh, so I, I'm going to continue here. He says, he told the operator and the Morabin briefing officer that the purpose of the flight was to bring back passengers. Mm -hmm. There was no evidence of any passengers at King Island waiting for him to pick up, nor did he have any orders for crayfish other than one crayfish from a member of the Air Training Corps. He did not order crayfish from King Island prior to the flight, and as it happened at that time, no crayfish were available at King Island. And uh, that comes mm -hmm. out later in the report. It turns out that uh, they were sold out. However... The other thing that comes up, which I'll touch on now, is that, first of all, the Southern Air Services, who operated the aircraft, would not allow the crayfish or the lobsters on the plane. They had a rule about that. Yeah. So to me, that makes sense that he would say, I'm going to pick up passengers. Because some people have said, well, why right. did he take four life jackets? Because he did. He took yeah. four life jackets onto the plane. It's because he's perpetrating a subterfuge. He doesn't want <laughs> the guys that operate the plane and are responsible for it to know that he's going to get lobster. So he yeah. takes a life jacket and says, I'm going to get passengers and figures when he comes back, it'll be after dark. No one will see that he's getting right. off the plane with lobster. Now, he didn't have an order for a lot of lobster or crayfish, but the point was he was in the Air Force Reserve and he was always trying to impress those guys mm -hmm. that he was in there with. And it wouldn't be uncalled for for the squadron commander that he reported to to say, hey, man, if you go to King Island, grab me a lobster. My conclusion or hypothesis, I should say, was you know what? He was flying this plane to fly it. He wanted to fly. He loved flying. And he probably was like, hey, you know, I'm yeah. going to go get a lobster and do a little brown nosing on the way. You know, I'll bring the lobster back for the squadron commander. Yeah, yeah. So I get brownie points. I'm getting time in the plane, all that stuff. So it makes sense to me that he was just going to get one for a nice dinner for the boss man. And he didn't order it ahead of time because he probably figured right. he'd just get off the plane and go pick it up and didn't know that it was sold out. And I think that answers the weird questions surrounding why did he take four life jackets? Why wasn't he honest about the lobster? All that. I think he was just trying to set out on a task. And in a weird way, I can kind of relate to this. There's something about the way he was operating that feels like how I would try to put something together. Yeah. And I don't know why. I just feel like I can relate to his plan here. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing uh, uh, untoward or, or too weird, even though people try and find that because, again, they're trying to dig yeah. for that rational explanation. Is that uh, well? He he was he was uh, working some other angle here. This was all a ruse, uh, either to disappear or whatever. But keep in mind, he's a training pilot. That's yeah. his passion in life. That's what he wants to do. So 
the more hours you get behind the yoke or the stick, the better it is. And this was meant to be a training flight where you have to plot a few points and come back. It was easy enough to do. Yeah, if, if you like to ride a motorcycle, yeah. you find an excuse to ride. Yeah. Like, I need to go get some milk. <laughs> right. Let me just take the bike. And that's what you do. You, you find an excuse to do what you like. So that's how I see yeah. it. I, and that's what I think too. And, and we'll elaborate more on that as we go ahead, um, as we move ahead here. Well, he had told his girlfriend, again, this from the report, he would meet her at 1930 hours, so at 730. And this was a time he could not possibly keep with this flight. And that's true. There's some discrepancy there. Originally, they were supposed to have a date, a Saturday night date. And she had to remind him of that. And he was like, oh, but I'm going to King Island tonight. And then he said, but I'll be back. Let's mm. just push it a little bit. But even the time he pushed it to, he couldn't have made. So that was a little weird. And he told his father he yeah. would come home after yeah. returning from King Island. But that was not something he would have been able, he was going out on a date. So a lot of that didn't quite add up. Again, it indicates he did not request aerodrome mm. lighting at King Island for his arrival, but he was also aware that the King Island Flight Service Unit had closed. And then they say in the report, it seems possible that he might not have had any intention of proceeding to King Island. But uh, even with that being closed, I know you can still land there. The, the few times that I've been up in a private aircraft, I flew with a friend who had one in Los Angeles, a, a director, a film director, who now owns a drone company that films for movies and uh, commercials <laughs> and stuff. He took me on a flight one day from Santa Monica Airport for lunch, which I think I've mentioned on the show before in the past. But And we went and landed at a little strip in mm -hmm. a lake uh, where you could get a burger in the control tower. There was like a restaurant in there. And he was like, I don't know if she's there, meaning yeah, the yeah. woman that would guide you in. And he was like, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's So when you're going to these smaller airports, it, it's if they're closed, right. it doesn't mean that you can't land necessarily. No, I, and I've done this uh, uh, back when I was in high school with a friend who, uh, another young pilot, but he was a very smart guy. I think he ended up going to Annapolis. So, you know, pretty sharp cookie, but he knew how to fly. One evening, I was just, I think I was uh, staying over and he's like, hey, yeah. you want to go take the plane up? And it was at night. Didn't even occur to me, like, yeah. are, you, are you rated for night <laughs> yeah. flying? Yeah. It, it was clear out, but I didn't even think about it. Yeah, of course I want to go for a, a plane flight. And so uh, we went to a local regional airport, which was not open, but he radioed ahead. And there's somebody there. Yeah. And they kicked the lights on. Yeah. So we did a touch and go uh, landing. But that was kind of cool to see them do that. You radio ahead, uh, somebody will turn the lights on because it's a lot of electricity. Yeah. So you don't want to keep them burning all the time. Yeah, so that was interesting the way uh, that operated. But he, uh, what I learned then, not knowing anything about flying at all, was that I'm ready to just, you know, we, we pull up in the car and jump in yeah. and, and turn the key, man, let's go. He's like, no, no, yeah. no, we're doing a pre-flight checklist. Yeah. So he went around with a clipboard. He did all the stuff. And it's yeah. like, man, this is yeah. really involved. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I'd have the, the patience for this, but that's what any pilot will tell you is that you don't want to have a problem. This is not driving your... 72 Yeah, Cougar. you don't get a do-over a lot of times. Something goes wrong in, in the air. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure they made Cougars in, in 1972, I think. They did. Uh, but, but you can't pull over. So that's the idea. And uh, you can easily get into trouble. And uh, he wasn't the most experienced guy, but he was serious about it. And that's one thing I want to, uh, in, in his memory, is kind of stress here, that's what we're getting is that. Yes. He took it seriously. He's 20 years old, whether to, you know, he was to the point of being a commercial pilot yet, not quite, but he was, uh, he was dedicated to uh, achieving that. Yeah. And he was, he was having academic issues. And I'm sure you heard us say that he, uh, in this report, it talks about him failing those tests, but 
Right. He was still studying for him and trying to learn for him. He was very driven and he wanted to keep taking them. It's kind of like the CPA exam or anything that's complex like that. It's, you know what, you take it again. And uh, yeah. not passing it isn't necess- doesn't necessarily mean that you'll never pass it. So right, uh, he right. seemed to be determined to go on with that. And I think what you'll find here is, as we talk about some of his character references is that people thought that he would get through it, even though yeah. he clearly was not an exceptional student. So you know, when you start tearing apart somebody's life and looking back at all these things, especially posthumously and after, you know, in hindsight, after an issue like this, mm-hmm. I think people lean a lot into shortcomings and, and sometimes too much because you have to wonder, what would my own life look like if you picked it apart this far? You know, especially with these uh, strange occurrences and paranormal events, uh, possibly it turns into an ad hominem where they're, let's kind of maybe just look at the character of this person, not what happened. Yeah. Like the PGF, you look to Roger Patterson, well, this guy's a goofball. Of course this couldn't have happened. Right. It's like, well, don't look at him. Look at what happened. Yeah. Uh, something I've come to learn is that usually a lot of these small airports have pretty good cafes at them. Yeah. Because <laughs> guys do. will fly in, eat, do a land, and have lunch there. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. You find an excuse to fly. So let's, hey, let's travel up the coast and we'll have lunch at this uh, small airport. And so most every place that I've been, I, I can't say I've had a, a, a bad meal at a small regional airport cafe and they usually have one there yeah well that, and that's what my buddy said he said we're gonna go down there they got the best burgers in the world and i was like who makes the burgers and he goes the woman that just told us you know what the crosswind was i was like oh cool right. <laughs> that's exactly yeah. yeah so there's a good tip for people if you're traveling uh, check out your local airfields cafe yeah well uh, continuing here with uh, just a few more things from this page of the report It goes on to indicate that his girlfriend had stated that he perspired profusely and his voice changed in any (laughs) unexpected or out of the ordinary situation. So that's one thing that says he's kind of prone to a, I guess, a panicky physical reaction. However, a lot of his friends, as we'll see, tend to indicate that he's very measured and that he doesn't act without thinking first. Uh, It's just maybe a physical reaction to being uh, under pressure. It was particularly noticed while monitoring the recorded communications containing his detailed description of the other vehicle's maneuvers that his voice remained matter-of-fact and completely normal. If it had been the pilot's intention to disappear, a number of directions of travel were open to him to maintain communications for the period he did while operating below 5,000 feet. So they have an attached VHF coverage chart which would indicate all the places he could have flown to while saying that he was off the coast of Cape Otway if he was perpetrating some kind of trick. However, it is unlikely that such a document would have been available to him and his possible tracking directions would be limited to known coverage areas. Had the flight proceeded as planned and the aircraft did crash into the sea, it is most probable that wreckage would have been sighted. The aircraft disappeared without trace, and no wreckage was located or information received concerning the whereabouts of the aircraft and its occupant. It therefore is not possible to determine the cause of the disappearance, but it seems likely that the aircraft did not crash in the sea between Cape Otway and King Island. And that is a significant sentence. Listen to that again. That's the end Mm -hmm. of this report, Mm -hmm. this four or five year report here. It seems likely the aircraft did not crash in the sea between Cape Otway in King Island. Yeah. Latch onto that. Yeah. If it didn't crash in the yeah. sea, where'd it go? Because here's the thing. If it had crashed on the land in this area, this is not a huge area that we're looking at. King no. Island is no. tiny. They would have found it almost immediately. 
And back on the mainland, he wouldn't have been far enough away that it would have been a problem either. He, he would have been near the coast where all these people are uh, yeah. driving and, and hunting rabbits. They would have found him. They would have found the plane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's a significant comment. Even if they don't mean it to be, they're basically saying, look, if this thing had gone in the water, we would have seen it. We would have found it. And we didn't. Right. So we're not sure where it is. We don't know where yeah. it went. So I think that's really significant. So let's come back to the search for a second. They searched for four days with divers. I can tell you that the Bass Strait, which has had some other mysterious disappearances, we're going to be talking about it. Mm -hmm. It's also part of what they call the westerlies at the uh, 40th parallel. It's really yeah. intense wind and really strong currents from time to time in that water. But the interesting thing about Tasmania, which is south of Australia there, this is like when you look at the map, for those of you who are driving or doing something else right now and you can't see a map at the moment, but when you look at Australia and you look at the little teardrop that's falling down at the bottom, that's Tasmania. And just above that teardrop, which is almost shaped like a smile, as you look on a map, on the left side yeah. is a little island and on the right side is a little island. The island on the left is King Island, where he was headed to from Melbourne. The island on the right is Flinders, which will come up later. But that space in the Bass Strait that is between Tasmania and those islands and the mainland, the southern part of uh, Australia, is flat. It's like a mesa. It's not a, a crazy rough ocean bottom. It's yeah. pretty level and it has a consist, fairly consistent depth of about 200 feet. So it's really interesting to see, yeah, on Google Maps. Yeah. Uh, and you can see the underwater terrain and what it looks like and see the once uh, land bridged continent of Australia with uh, its heart-shaped Tasmania below. It, was it 12,000 years ago? 14,000 yeah, 12, years, years ago, it was continuous. Uh, so if the water was 200 feet shallower, you'd be able to walk from Tasmania to Australia. Yeah. So when you think about these divers, you know, they, apparently they're not looking in a particularly tricky area in terms of the yeah. sea bottom. But they, they terminated that search, as we said, October 25th at 7 p.m. after four days and not finding anything significant. However... There were two things that were noted in the report uh, as, as search problems. There was one where uh, an Orion aircraft apparently spent way too much time trying to direct a surface vessel to a position of a possible oil slick and debris. Mm -hmm. Now, it's my assumption that that vessel got to that oil slick because the report goes on to indicate that there was an analysis of an oil slick. So I'm thinking it's the same one. I don't know for sure, but I think it is because it's the only one mentioned. It is yeah. significant to note that the analysis of that oil slick, because you think, oh, wait, they did find something. Yeah. The oil was not consistent with aircraft fuel or right. lubrication. Right. I'll read it here in a little bit. I can't remember, but it, it didn't come from the plane. It's what they said. The other problem they had with the search was that there was a light aircraft that did not have any integral navigation systems. Now, remember, this is before GPS. If you didn't have that radio signal, you couldn't figure out where you were. And mm -hmm. this plane found possible debris, but it was out of sight of land. And they had to climb up to fix a position, I think to about 3,000 feet they were trying to get to. And when they did that, they lost sight of that debris and it was never seen again. So whatever that was, uh, we don't know. Yeah. So that's significant because they, they saw something and on top of that, they can't tell you where. <laughs> so yeah. That's a little, <laughs> right. little bit of an right. issue. But let's come back to some of these character witnesses, the people that knew Frederick Valentich, because there is a really thorough picture painted of him. And I have a lot of respect for this. I've, I've never gotten a chance to look at an aircraft accident investigation report like this. Yeah, It's really amazing how thorough it is and how much information they track down and how impartial they seem to be, actually, because I'm sure they were thinking things in their minds. But in the report, they stayed very impartial with the way that they explained it. 
I'm hoping later this year to look into the story of MH370. Been wanting to do that for a while mm-hmm. now. Been waiting a little bit because I kept hoping they would find it. And that would be the button. <laughs> uh, but they still haven't found uh, that plane. And that's the, no. the Malaysian Airlines uh, 777 that vanished with a full load yeah. of passengers. So that story is controversial. Very yeah, very controversial. Uh, dipping in uh, uh, conspiracy territory. Yeah, conspiracy really territory. Do, but it, it is fascinating. But it's a meaty one, too. I mean, that could, that's going to be two parts at least, I think. Oh, yeah, definitely. So but so this is our – we're wetting the whistle here with this little tiny airplane and one person, but um, that only went a few miles offshore. Still, that makes it even more mysterious because it's not like yeah. it had a huge range based on the communications it was having that it could have gone to. It has to be there somewhere and or not in our universe anymore, if you believe <laughs> any of this at all. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Aditya. Now back to the show. Well, in the course of this investigation, they spoke to a lot of witnesses, and this is where you really get the picture of what Frederick uh, Valentich was like. The first one is the briefing officer from Moravin. His name was Darcy Hogan, and Hogan was in the Air Training Corps, so he knew Valentich. He said he didn't know much about the visual meteorological conditions that night, uh, and he also said that Valentich told him he was going to pick up passengers, but he didn't know how many. So again, I think the passenger thing is subterfuge. He's picking and choosing who he's telling the truth to about that because mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. trying to keep the lobster thing quiet, I think. <laughs> right. And if not the lobster thing, maybe just covering up the fact that he wanted to go for a flight, you know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. it's entirely possible. But anyway, Darcy Hogan described him as being in a normal frame of mind uh, and also said that he, it's true he never asked for the lights when he was at the briefing. And uh, he also described Valentich as an average pilot of average mm-hmm. maturity and said, quote, this <laughs> little bit condemning, wasn't exceptional mm. in any way, end quote. Well, he's also 20. No, he is, he's but a that's, it's a, there's a little bit of a consistency there because of, you know, the academic yeah. problem with failing the commercial pilot license tests, all the CPL tests he took, also right. his grades, his school grades come up in this report and yeah. they were yeah. not, I mean, they're just bad. They're bad. They're Ds yeah, and yeah. Fs and fails. The only thing he had at A uh. was PE. But, you know, in a lot of cases, it, one of my best friends in the world growing up was, um, is dyslexic and had yeah. uh, ADD. Yeah. And he's a smart, smart, smart dude, but he had a hard time in school. There are learning disabilities that prevent people from achieving on a, a typical measured scale. Yeah. And I think the one of the things that was clear about Valentich, though, was that he really was focused on getting past all that and, and being a pilot. Well, mm-hmm. That was what Hogan said about him. He said they didn't really have any close social contact, but any time that he talked to him, and this is something that's going to come up, he said that he never heard him mention UFOs. Now, the reason I'm pointing mm-hmm. that out is because in this story, one of the things that you'll read... Uh, and a lot of places, especially from the skeptics, oh, he was obsessed with UFOs. He was obsessed yeah. with them. <laughs> right. That is not what the witness stories bear out. One of the next witnesses we want to touch on is uh, Ron Tyson. Ron is the guy that refueled the plane uh, before he took off from Arabin. One of the things they asked him about was, was there any chance that you didn't put the right fuel in it? And he explained the protocols mm-hmm. about how it was locked up and he had to unlock and get this particular truck and do this thing and that. And there's just no chance it didn't have the right fuel. In addition to that, he said, and I love this, I can almost hear this guy saying it, it was filled to the brim, filled it to the brim. And he said um, that the pilot was a young chap that stayed in the aircraft and left immediately as soon as it was topped off. And uh, he had told, according to Ron, I don't think he told him directly, but he told the Southern Air Service he was picking up passengers. But uh, they thought crayfish, but the crayfish are not allowed in SAS planes, uh, Southern Air Service planes. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe he thought he could would get back after dark and get away with it. That's what Ron speculated on. He said that uh, with regard to the plane's navigation, it had um, ADF, VHF, and HF. ADF is an automatic direction finder that uh, precedes more modern navigation tools. VHF is radio, and HF is also, I think, high-frequency radio. I didn't look that one up, but I'm pretty sure that's what yeah. that is, if I remember correctly. You know what? We we used to know all this yeah, stuff. from Amelia. temporary experts. Uh, yeah. Well, Amelia, but also Flight 19. Oh, yeah, Flight 19. Yeah. Yes, yes. All right, so here's another witness. His name's Brian Jones. He was the officer in charge at King Island, I guess, and uh, he was on duty that Saturday. He had a lot of information. He did indicate that the lights, again, were never requested. They keep bringing that up. And he said, normally those are requested beforehand. But the other thing that Brian Jones said as the guy at King Island was that not a single lobster crayfish was ordered. And on top of that, they Mm -hmm. had sold out that afternoon. He also Mm -hmm. said there was no motel booked for the pilot, like if he had planned to spend the night or anything, just that was something Mm -hmm. I guess they checked into. And he didn't recognize Valentich's name, but he did know the plane. It had been there before, which makes sense because lots of people were flying it out of uh, Moravin, that particular aircraft. It wasn't Frederick's plane. It was the Southern Air Service's plane. And then another interesting conversation here was had with a uh, cray fisherman and kelp farmer at King Island named Cliff Day who said that he was not going to go cray fishing until the next week and that he had last gone in June of 78. Mm. So maybe there was a season or whatever. He said he cannot remember who he sells crays to, and the name Valentich means nothing. He had no phone call from Valentich ordering crays, and if he had rung, there were no crays available from him. It is unusual, he said, for someone to expect crays at that time of night, but if they had been ordered, there would have been no problem. I love that these lobsters or crayfish are at the middle of this whole thing. Was he trying to get them on the plane? I don't know. <laughs> well, you know what? It might be uh, something about live animals transporting. Yeah, that could be I it too. Know, it's off the top of my head. Yeah. But if you're transporting lobsters, uh, you want them live because they're freshest and they will keep uh, in colder, you know, you, you, you put them in a cooler with some ice and they'll keep. So maybe there's something uh, having to do with that, some uh, uh, regulation about uh, transporting uh, Well, yeah, and then if they go in, there's food. A, there, yeah, and there's another witness here, um, Mr. K. McCrawley's, uh, who was uh, the mess officer in the Air Training Corps. It says here that this investigator, I.S. Smith, had spoken to him concerning the report from Mr. Guido Valintich uh, that his son was going to King Island to pick up lobsters for the mess. He told me the mess had not ordered any craze. However... Members may have made private arrangements, and he would check it out that night. Hmm. Mr. McCrawley phoned me today and stated that squadron leader Grandy had ordered a cray if Frederick did go to King Island, but there had not been any other firm orders. So here, this is a confirmed request from the squadron leader for a lobster from King Island. Yeah, so good to nail that down. But... Frederick didn't call ahead and didn't actually order it. Now, the thing that I will say about this, people are like, ooh, he wasn't going to go. He was never intending to go there. He was going to fly the plane <laughs> right. into the ocean. Here's the thing. Yeah. One of the things that's consistent in all these witness reports is that Frederick had a predilection to overlooking small details mm. um, so that he was focused on big picture and things like that. But even his dad said, you know, he can overlook small things. The takeaway for me there was that it would make sense to me that he would fly there and not have checked to see if there was crayfish there before he got there, especially if he only needed one and thought, oh, I can get one. It can't be that hard. You know, I could see him doing that or just being like so excited about the flight that he forgot the reason he was getting it or something like that. There's just, it just doesn't mean much to me that he didn't order it, I guess. 
right, in the scheme right. of things. And I think it's because I'm a little bit scattered and I can relate to this guy more than I want to. <laughs> <laughs> I do the same thing. When you have an end goal, uh, you know, you're focused on that. Uh, sometimes you can forget to side things. Yeah. Uh, there was another gentleman, Vince Alfonso. He flew that same plane at 6 a.m. that morning. The same exact plane. He did a daily inspection before 6 a.m. He flew it at yeah. 6, 10 a.m. He had no issues except that he had a passenger who noticed that there was a fuel cap trouble, but uh, that that wound up being repaired because when they landed, I guess, they saw something. They landed and the cap was hanging by its cord or whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. So they got it uh, repaired before Valintich flew it. There's not apparently really anything there. Now, one of the bigger, more significant witnesses this is a character witness who had a very um, involved relationship with Frederick or interpersonal relationship, yes. was uh, Captain E.R. Barnes. Barnes is Edwin Rober Barnes. He's a captain with Associated Airlines, also Air Training Corps RAAF, and therefore the contact through squadron leader Grandy. Barnes actually had instructed Fred in navigation and aircraft performance, uh, but he never flew with him. And so he's, these are the comments that uh, Barnes said about Fred. He spent a lot of time with him. He basically tutored him. He said that Frederick had a healthy approach to flying. He never took shortcuts. He said in all the time that he spent with him, he never even mentioned UFOs. He said he was a quiet person till he got to know you. Uh, he didn't ever really see much anger in him, except for one time when he was on an approach uh, and he was apparently approaching the wrong runway and the traffic control got on him about it. And he was mad because he said he was following procedure to the letter. And whenever he talked about that story, he got mad. But he said that he had never flown with him. So in this letter from Barnes, he talks about, it's a letter that he sent to the investigators. He talks about Fred and he says, it's a, basically a glowing review of admiration for him. And he talked about how Frederick was, since he was not accepted for RAAF aircrew, he was pursuing a civilian pilot license. I guess he was saying that he wanted to show the RAAF yeah. that yeah. he could be a pilot. And he did one of those things, which I admire. He showed up at the air squad, at the air training corps. He would just show up and work for free, do yeah. things for them, you know, cleaning up around and uh, going to do things without pay. But he also said, yeah, he, you know what? He failed all six CPL exams and then uh, commercial pilot license exams. And then he, but he asked me for help and he came every week and I helped him. And he said he was always responsible uh, and sometimes he would have to bring his younger twin sisters. And mm. he uh, was very carefully supervised them, even though he was over there getting a lesson. And he found mm. that as an admirable indication of his responsibility level. He said that he had a responsible attitude towards aircraft. He rarely saw him drink, never saw him drunk. He had no adverse comments about him drinking. He wanted the instrument rating, of course. And he also wanted that twin endorsement that we mentioned earlier. He was a really bad speller which I think, again, is consistent mm. with maybe with dyslexia or ADD or mm -hmm. other problems. But he said that he felt he was academically suited to be a pilot. However, he had navigation problems uh, on the exams. And what he chalked that up to was really just his impatience and desire to finish the exams. Again, I think this is typical of, uh, you know, I don't know a lot about ADD, so I'm not trying to be an expert about it. But I think it is mm -hmm. typical of attention deficit disorder type situation, maybe, where he's you know, losing patience with finishing the problems the way they need to be finished. So he takes shortcuts and, and gets it wrong. But he did have a respect for authority. 
you know, he said he never saw Matt except for that one time about that approach that we mentioned a few minutes ago. He had a healthy flight discipline. He had determination and he described him, and I quote, as a battler. But here's the other part of it. He actually lied to Barnes about failing two exams that Barnes had helped him prepare for. And he did not know that until he disappeared. And this is a consistent thing. Frederick seemed to be lying to the ones that were close to him about not passing these tests. And it's not clear whether that's embarrassment or determination or whatever the reason, if maybe he's saying, you know what, I'm going to pass it, or, or I thought I would pass it. There was one indication where he had done the same thing with his girlfriend, but it seemed like there was a little vagary as to whether the difference was between whether he thought he passed it and whether he actually had the grade in hand yet. So I don't know there. I want to read the last three paragraphs of this Barnes letter, which I've summarized up until now. Mm -hmm. This is on uh, page 69 of the 320-page report. I now wonder if he was ashamed for not having passed the exams, possibly realizing that he would never get his CPL. Because everyone had forged the same high opinion of him, was he a good actor? Did he have a split personality? Could he have really been unstable? In view of this, together with his mysterious disappearance, is it in any way significant that on the Sunday following his exams, he and Rhonda brought two bottles of wine to my home to share that day because he said he thought he had passed both exams? I declined because I was in reserve, meaning their um, air reserve, and said that we would drink them when he was told that he had passed. That was his last visit to my home. Did he know then that he had failed? Was the wine payment for me for my efforts? All right, so here he's about to make reference to a ring, a friendship ring that he gave his girlfriend, Rhonda. And uh, later what Rhonda said was, you know, he gave it to me on the uh, 13th, October 13th, even though he knew our anniversary was the 20th. And there's been some speculation about that. Was that because he knew he was having suicidal thoughts and he had made this plan? You know, why did he give it to her early? So in this last paragraph from Barnes, here's a list of things that trouble him giving Rhonda the friendship ring a week earlier than their anniversary, reportedly speaking calmly on the radio about a UFO, then reporting engine trouble. No lights, passengers, or craze organized at King Island. I am now asking myself if he has absconded with the aircraft or if it was a suicide flight that he had carefully planned for some time. He closes out with, I trust that the above information is acceptable and may in some way provide helpful to your investigation. Yours faithfully, R. Barnes. So I think it's a pretty fascinating letter. That one really gives you a lot of detail. Yeah. All right, we should talk about the weather. There's not a whole lot to say about this. I think we touched on this a few times already. It was excellent. There was little to no cloud cover, very light winds, calm sea, 60 nautical miles of visibility. And again, the sunset was 8.50 p.m. with last light at 9.21 p.m., Everything that happened to Frederick started at 7.06 p.m. So as, as far as we can tell, unless we've made a mistake or a bad calculation, there was plenty of light. E even though he was uh, night rated, he was not yeah. really in a situation. He would have been probably on his return, maybe dealing with darkness when he took mm -hmm. off. But again, remembering, and this keeps coming up, he didn't ask to have the lights turned on at King Island. Yeah, he didn't need them. And this is another critical, crucial point with the arguments against uh, it being some kind of phenomenon is that when you talk about the other aviation problems with pilots not noticing that they're slowly descending and losing altitude, those are usually in other conditions. And again, I go back to flight 401 where it was nighttime. There was no ground lights for to speak of in the Everglades area. 
It was so gradual. Nobody in the cockpit noticed that they were slowly descending. Yeah. Gradually yeah. until it was too late. That's when that happens. Right. Not now. What is the alarm? There's an alarm. Terrain. Isn't it like terrain? <laughs> well, <laughs> I know like, that because I did, actually, I worked on a, yeah. I was working on a video for Honeywell and they were working on the TCAS system. And so I, you know, as you do, when you finish the video, you make uh, a thousand dubs of it. Right. So I just kept hearing, pull up, yeah. pull up. <laughs> that is scary. And it's this weird that robotic is, voice. Yeah. It's pull not what up. you want to hear. Yeah. yeah. You're about <laughs> to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's not alarming. It's not uh, authoritative in a way. It's just, a, yeah, it's a very strange thing. But that's what pilots hear when they, uh, you know, they come close to another aircraft. But as far as getting too close to the ground, yeah, there are warnings that go off, at least with the more modern aircraft. All right. Well, here is the statement from Guido Valintich, who was Frederick's father, and obviously the one who seems to be most connected with missing him. And, and we've talked a little bit about his mom, and I don't know a whole lot about this, because at one point, the copy of the report when it was finished said it was delivered to Mrs. Valintich, but she doesn't come up anywhere else as having been talked to or anything. So I'm not sure, you know, for all I know, the well, it wouldn't be Mrs. I was going to say that could be one of his younger twin sisters, wouldn't be a Mrs. Mm -hmm. But like, uh, it's interesting how absent she is from all this information. But when they did talk to Guido, there's a whole page about that. It's got some detailed information. It's actually page 83 of the uh, PDF of the report, which is actually 320 pages, even though the report itself is 315. So when I mention a page number, this PDF of the full report, is that's relative to the 320-page document, just so everyone mm. knows. But, you know, he said, yes, you know, Frederick was studying commercial pilot meteorology uh, via lectures, which I think he was attending once or twice a week. He said that he was in totally normal spirits, uh, good spirits, the morning of his flight. He said he had no financial problems, and this is something that was echoed by all the witnesses. Nobody knew of any money problems that he had, and in fact, I think when he disappeared, he had $1,500 in the bank, I believe I read. Mm -hmm. He said that he was generous and that he, on holidays and stuff, you know, he would give generous presents to his family. But his dad, Guido, did help pay for the flying to help fuel his interests. There were no mm -hmm. problems at home, according to Guido, and he did his home duties or chores or whatever. And just to point there, we're, we're going to come to another witness later. I can't remember who it was now, but it's going to come up, who did suggest that there had been an argument recently at home. But again, that doesn't, I, you know, I don't know what that means. Families argue, so yeah. it, didn't, it didn't seem very specific. But here's an interesting uh, couple sentences I did want to read from the end of page 83 of the 320-page PDF that is taken from the interviews with Guido about Frederick. And it says, Frederick always had the idea that some people wanted to stop him succeeding, so he didn't discuss his flying or intentions with anyone. He just wanted to get through and surprise everyone by showing them that he could actually do it. So I thought that was interesting. This is something Guido is pointing out, which I think is saying, you know, it's not a character flaw. It's just that he was head down and focused. But there is a little bit of a paranoia to the idea that people wanted to stop him from succeeding. And maybe mm. he felt put upon because, as we said earlier, he was having academic difficulties and that sort of thing. So it's it's hard to say. And, you know, these people are describing him as unexceptional and average. A lot of people are all describing him as a very middle-of-the-road guy. But one thing that he seems to have in spades is determination. Now, when we get to page 84, these last steps of the interview with uh, Guido Valentich, which was uh, done by the investigator P, uh, letter P, Graham. Again, there was four investigators and then the one lead investigator, which was Sandra Koch. I can't remember each individual investigator's names, but it's in the report. 
Mr. Graham collected this from Guido, and I wanted to read these statements here about uh, UFOs and also his girlfriend. This is very interesting. Frederick was a firm believer in UFOs. He had saved articles and information on UFOs, read Chariot of the Gods, and other books, and went to see movies on the subject. This interest started when he was in school about six years ago. His belief has been strengthened recently when he was allowed to see the RAAF's confidential files on UFOs at East Sale and at Laverton. He what? wouldn't Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of cool. He wouldn't discuss these details with his family as they were confidential. So that's a whole paragraph right there. Hmm. What is that about? I don't know. Next paragraph. His mother saw a UFO one night. She called Fred, and he saw it too. It was a large light, 10 times larger than a star, was stationary for a while, and then moved off at a great speed. This hmm. happened about eight months ago. Before the incident? Yes. Eight months prior wow. to the incident, yeah. he and his mom both saw a UFO together. Mm -hmm. His father eventually became convinced that UFOs existed. That's another line. In the report, yeah. this is in the official report, Frederick worried about attack from UFOs and what they could do. His father had told him there was nothing they could do, and so no point in worrying. Mm. I don't know what that means. Does that mean there's nothing that the UFOs could do or nothing that they could do defensively? Against UFOs. I did the second part, and that's how I feel too. Yeah. Is yeah. that there's no, uh, and, and of course, uh, a lot of uh, aficionados and um, UFO experts have said that as well, and that there's really no sense. Well, I mean, we should know what we're up against. Yeah. That's what the whole ATIP thing is about, and also what may be about this uh, Pentagon revelation that's in the last uh, congressional bill that in three months they have yeah. to uh, tell us what we're up against and uh, what's that all about? I don't know, you know, and I'm, I was wanting to talk to you about that because I think that might be yeah. a good first topic for us test flying our YouTube channel uh, maybe <laughs> it might be. later this uh, month or at the top of February. Because I, Yeah, I, I especially when that. it comes out. Yeah. But no, that's what I was saying, uh, that uh, we should know what we're dealing with and have an idea of it. But really, looking at the technology, there's not much you can do to defend yourself against it. So there's no point in being afraid in a way. Yeah. You know, look, if it turns into Independence Day, the movie, then, you know, there's things we can do in response. Yeah, we, perhaps, all we have to but, do is take uh, a thumb drive up there to the mothership. And fortunately or unfortunately, we're going to need Randy Quaid. Uh, yeah, I feel like he's <laughs> tech on a veil right now. Um, oh, okay. But we'll have to. We Lay can, low? Yeah, right. yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> continuing, there's just two more statements on this page I want to share. One says, his father is unsure about what Rhonda Rushton, Frederick's girlfriend, had said about them going out on Saturday night. 102178. He knows Fred was going to be home and thinks something about her statement is fishy, but doesn't know what. Because they were supposed to have a date. And now, according to mm. the other accounts, he forgot about the date and scheduled a flight when the date was. So then he said, No, wait, I'll come get you at this time. But then the time he gave was impossible for him to get back in time for. So there is a little weirdness about whatever that date was. There's something strange there, which is what mm -hmm. the dad thinks. So, but I don't know. But the dad also seemed to be not too impressed with the relationship. Not Rhonda so much, but just kind of thought the relationship was just not all that serious. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you talk to Rhonda or the other people around Frederick, it did seem very serious. You know, that's a very typical thing. Who knows which side of that is real, the parents or the, or the kids' perspective. Yeah. He also said Fred's memory was good for important matters, but he sometimes overlooked unimportant things. So 
I thought that was interesting, you know, detail problems, which again comes back to me saying, uh, well, you know, maybe he did intend to go get the crayfish or the lobster for the squadron commander um, at the Air Training Corps, but forgot to call ahead and make sure there was one available. Yeah, right, right. Which is all just pretty normal stuff. It doesn't belie anything, you know, more intense in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So uh, then we move on to the interview with Rhonda, the girlfriend, and she said in that interview they were supposed to have a date that night. He adjusted the time, told her he would fly, get the lobster, this is what he told her, come back, and they could go out. Now, she had told him to take his nice clothes with him so that he could change so that they could go out. Don't forget to take your nice clothes so we can go out, not wear what he wore on the plane, because he wore a standard outfit on the plane, including a jacket that he felt was lucky, apparently. Mm. And she said, you know, he probably had his life jacket on, too, because he was always prepared that way. She noticed after he vanished, when she went to his car at the airport at Moorabbin, that uh, the clothes weren't in there. So Hmm. that's a statement to think about. The, you know, if he was supposedly going to go on this date with her when he got back, he did not have the clothes. But again, we go back to the very last statement from the dad saying he sometimes overlooked on important details. So read into that what you will. Now, she also knew that he would, I guess there was a McDonald's there in Moorabbin that he always went to. And there were multiple witnesses saying that he went to that McDonald's and he would order a ton of food. I guess he was a big eater, even though he only weighed 125 pounds. He would get yeah. like two filet of fishes and all this. And yeah. everybody was like, oh, we don't know. Well, we don't know where he was for this hour. And everybody was like McDonald's, apparently. <laughs> and he took him a long time yeah. to eat. She also mm-hmm. pointed out that he hardly drank at all, which is what everyone said. He was cheerful, outwardly happy. But she also said that on Friday, he seemed a little off Hmm. the day before. And I I want to point out again that she's very young. I think she's 17 at this time. So this is, you know, it's a very young, he's 20, she's 17. It's a very young time to be uh, making observations in a, in a serious relationship like that. I'm not putting anyone down. I'm just saying you're, Mm -hmm. as you get older, you get more effective at evaluating things like that. But she also said- more perspective. Yeah, more perspective. She also said his health was very good. And then, and we talked about this, he had a friendship ring for her that he gave to her on the 13th, even though she knows that he clearly knew their anniversary was the 20th. Mm -hmm. By all accounts from both of them and all the friends, they were very much infatuated with each other. So why did he give the ring early? Did that mean he thought he wouldn't come back from this flight? So there's something else. She additionally pointed on that he would sweat profusely whenever something went wrong, like flop mm-hmm. sweat, I guess. Uh, she mentioned at one point he had a panic on an approach because the control column was locked in the aircraft, and she actually had to wipe his brow while he was sorting out the landing. But she also said he was calm, like outwardly calm and measured. Everyone said that he didn't ever make an instinctive decision. He made a decision that was measured, but he still would get this, like, I guess, really flop sweat if a situation was yeah. getting a little hairy. And she pointed out that he left his mic on his lap, I guess didn't return it to the cradle or the clip wherever it would live. And sometimes it would be activated by his legs moving around while he was flying. And she said he had a habit of rubbing it on his sleeve before using it, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. She said too, that he had long legs and he would push his seat back and she thought that the noise at the end of the final recording of the metal scraping sound might have been him trying to push his seat back or pushing his seat back. But, you know, it went on for 17 seconds. That's a long time for seat adjusting. Seat and leg clicking and wiping on shirt. Yeah. Here, here's my point about that. Yeah. He was in the middle of reporting back to air traffic control. Yeah. He was saying, this is not an aircraft. 
And following procedure, as we know, he's at least a stickler for that. Right. He, you would think, would immediately report with some more information. Yeah, yeah. And also, Stephen Roby, the air advisor, air traffic advisor, he's asking him questions. Like, he's not just waiting five minutes for him to respond. He's right. trying to get him to respond and, and, uh, and immediately, and he's not. So I think from that, you can assume... Either something happened at that moment, as soon as he uttered those words, or if you believe the hoax part or whatever, that that's the last he was going to say to make it more dramatic. Yeah, it's a good point. But either way, I don't think he's waiting to think up like, hmm, what are some good adjectives to describe this? You yeah. Know, like, well, yeah. Let, me, let me think about what to say here. No, he, he would have responded immediately or not at all. Well, another thing that Rhonda said was that he always planned for possible emergencies. She said that every time they went to take off, he would plan for an emergency landing He even went so far as to tell her if anything went wrong where he became incapacitated that she should look for a straight road or a paddock without fences to land at. She additionally indicated that with regard to UFOs, he did say to her once, you know, if a UFO landed in front of me now, I would go in it, but never without you. Aw. Yeah. I don't know if he asked her if she wanted to go. But um, (laughs) you're coming along with me, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And she further added that she knew he had clippings, but did not consider him an avid collector, just somebody with an average interest in UFOs. You told me this earlier and it made me think, I believe, of Travis Walton and what was reported about him saying, yeah, I'm interested in UFOs. And, And I think with his logging crew, there was some discussion that, yeah, if one landed, I think I'd get in. Yeah. Like, what are you, nuts? And so that's also pretty interesting because yeah. you, you talk about that. He's like, yeah, I think I can get in. It seems interesting. And I'm sure I probably wouldn't be hurt. And and then he does. Yeah. And that's when the giant being playing the Sims looks down and gets a message that said, this Sim says he wants to go on a UFO. And, and, that, clicks and they the say, yeah. okay, I'm going to send a UFO for that guy. <laughs> and so I just want to read these last two paragraphs again from her statements, uh, according to investigator uh, Sandercock, who was the lead investigator on this accident or incident. Asked concerning his personality, Miss Rushton, that's Rhonda, said Valentich held problems, quote, in the back of his mind, and that he held them as a list, and when he had worked out a solution, he mentally crossed it off. Hmm. I thought that was interesting. You know, it tells you a little bit about his thought processes. Again, I can relate to this guy in more ways than I probably should be able to. Um, <laughs> right. It also says he had lied to her very soon after their first meeting that he had passed his meteorology subject for his commercial license. And after four months, he had admitted to his lie and that he was repeating the subject. She said he had, quote, no one to talk his problems out with, end quote but she was aware he had long talks with a Robert Barnes about flying and flying problems. And that was Mr. Barnes, whose statement we already read, the really detailed one, where at the end he was saying, gosh, what if, what if, what if? So that was it for the interview with Miss Rushton, at least that one. The investigators were very impressed with her. They did describe her as being mature beyond her age and very collected and uh, an intelligent person. You know, they didn't necessarily think there was any subterfuge there or anything not to trust about what she was saying. One more witness that I wanted to discuss was Gregory Rayburn. That's R-E-A-B-U-R-N. These guys were friends. Frederick and Gregory were friends. This seems to be the closest friend maybe he had. They knew each other from the Air Training Corps. And Valentich had told him he had twice tried to get into the Royal Australian Air Force and was twice denied based on educational qualifications, not having enough. And so then he pivoted to trying to get his commercial license just to show the RAAF that he could do that. He also understood that Frederick and Rhonda were very close. 
And he felt that suicide for Frederick was absolutely out of the question. He said Frederick was way too close to his family, his girlfriend, and his friends. He added that he knew that his dad helped him with his flying, with the cost of it. But also, as I said a few minutes ago, they had recently had a family argument. He didn't know anything about what it was about. He generally thought the family was very close. He said Frederick had no medical issues, not much alcohol, zero drugs. In fact, he even said Frederick was the kind of guy, because nobody's going to like this, a little bit of a, a rat, I guess, who if he knew somebody on drugs, he would immediately go tell the police. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah. wow. Boy um, Scout. Gregory also said that he knew Valentich was going to King Island, but he wasn't sure what day he was going. And he had told him he was going to bring back a lobster for the OIC, the officer in charge of the Air Training Corps, which was uh, Squadron Grandy. But he found that out after the plane vanished. So it's not clear to me. Th there's a little bit of confusion there. He indicated additionally that at one point he had been in a helicopter with Valentich flying it and that he was a good pilot. The helicopter pilot even said he flew it well which that's a whole different thing from an airplane, uh, considerably more complex. He added that he was not prone to hasty decisions or panic. He always stops and thinks, which is the same thing that Rhonda had said. He said once they got lost in the bush together during training and Valentich was not the slightest bit perturbed. Hmm. Now, this is the counterpoint to the whole profuse sweating thing. Again, I, and I'm acknowledging that. There's a thing about where he gets to where he's sweating profusely, but by the same token, everyone says he stays calm. I'm not sure how those two things balance out. Maybe that's just a physical reaction that's not connected to his mental state. I don't know. It depends on the situation where if you're not panicked or, you know, there's people breathing down your neck, certainly as editors, remember that when you have eyeballs staring at the back of your head? Oh, yeah. You're trying to do a complex edit. And I've known some editors that have locked up. Yeah. I call it editor freeze. It's and, horrible. Uh, yeah. When the people are getting agitated because they think they can do it better than you, even though yeah. they don't know how to work yeah. the software. Yeah, you're and doing they're waiting for you to fix it super fast, but it's yeah. a complex problem. It's a complex problem. It requires programming. Uh, yeah, that's know, when you you're like, are you sure you guys want to eat? There's a great restaurant down the street. You want to go yeah. get some lunch? Come back. I'll have this all sorted out. <laughs> that's what I would do. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do. It's on me. He got, <laughs> he got fired from like his first four editing jobs because he would eventually have to pick up the manual. Yeah. And yeah. and look something up because it was complicated back yeah. then. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you got clients there and they don't like that. So th th in that situation, yeah, I would probably start sweating. But when you have some time to figure it out, he's a rational thinker. Yes. And that's why, again, going back to Roby's statement is that, well, he, he sounded concerned, but not panicked. Right. He sounded a little confused. He, he didn't understand what he was looking at. And I'm sure... You know, if you even know about UFOs and you wondered about uh, encountering one, yeah, and then you actually do, you don't know how you're going to act in that moment. Right. Uh, so he's he's aware of what he could be looking at, but not sure how to handle this thing, as he said, toying with him. Right. Or how should he proceed? What do right. you do in that situation? So he's trying to, you know, I'm sure his brain's trying to rack through good standard procedure, but he is concerned, but not panicked. Well, that's a good point. And here's one of the other interesting things that uh, Rayburn said. He said that Valentich believed in UFOs, but was not fanatical. This is the second or third witness saying this. Yeah, he believed in him. He had some clippings. He wasn't obsessed with him. He also said the same thing Rhonda said. He would have been wearing his life jacket because he was flying over water and he would have put it on as a precaution. But there was this additional thing that he said towards the end of his interview. He thought the timing of the night was weird, and this is the weird thing. He had arranged to pick his girlfriend up at 7.30 p.m. to take her out, but he told his dad, Valentich's dad, Guido, that he'd be home from flying at 10 p.m. There was no way he could get back to Rondo by 7.30. And he said anytime he was going to be late for something, he would call ahead. This is another thing that I do. 
Mm-hmm. He also said uh, no gambling, no financial issues, no police record, and he had never once spoke of being disoriented in an aircraft. Hmm. So that's from his buddy that had known him seven or eight years. So all those people lined up together, I think give you a really good picture of what Frederick was like. At least I felt like I had one. I felt like I really got to know him after this, and I, I guess I felt more empathetic for him. I mean, he's just, he's a pretty young guy. It's pretty impressive what he's doing for 20 years old. Sure, sure. I mean, to have 150 hours of flying, and also to be faced with all of those missteps, you know, the, the failures of the uh, commercial pilot license tests and the inability to get into the RAAF, but you know what? He didn't let that stop him. He went down there, and he started volunteering, and uh, volunteering to clean up, and then they took him into their ranks. And then he's making friends with these guys who are helping him study so that he can do better on the exams, which again, he still did not do well on. For me, it's like all in how you look at this. A lot of people I think will look at us and be like, well, he disappeared. He made a mistake. He was green. He didn't know something confused him and now he's gone. Look at all this. He failed all these tests or whatever. He's, you know, he's loser. And like, Mm -hmm. I actually don't see him that way. I see this guy as coming up against uh, some real personal issues in terms of academics but really sticking to his guns in terms of being determined to see this thing through. And I think that's really, really admirable, how focused he was on getting to his goals. Yeah. To me, that's yeah. very impressive, regardless of him ratting out anybody that's doing drugs or whatever. He's, <laughs> <laughs> he's definitely well, not I, guy. He should be doing that. I yeah, guess. his personality is very, um, you know, it's very specific. And I, I can see people latching onto, oh, God, I wouldn't want to hang out with this guy or whatever. And I was like, and I like to look at the bigger picture. And what I see is a very determined individual struggling against his own demons and uh, larger ones. You know, and flying a plane is hard. It's hard to learn all that stuff. But he wasn't giving up on it, at least not. And in, in, in at 20, there's not a lot of people, I think, at that age that have that much resolve, which I think is, is really fast. I know I didn't by the way. You know, both of us, yeah, of course not. Certainly you and I were both interested in cars at that point, but you look at a lot of, I I think a lot of people in general would have given up after failing twice or running into the obstacles he did and said, you know what, this is too hard. Yeah. But he's not doing that. He's trying to figure out, okay, how do I surmount this challenge? Well, it doesn't matter what era you're in. At 20, a lot of younger people don't stick with stuff because you got so many other interests. You know what I'm saying? When you're when yeah, you're it's that hard to age. figure you're out what you trying, want to do. Yeah, you're I trying to other stuff know. out. Yeah, I mean, I thought you know, when I was uh, maybe ten years younger than that, at uh, ten to fifteen, I thought I wanted to be a jet fighter pilot. Yeah, it was so cool. It's the coolest machine on the planet. And then I realized uh, I don't think I was tall enough, and uh, I had good vision then. But there's other specifications that can keep you out from that. So, uh, and there's a lot of math. It's really interesting. It's really exhilarating, but I wouldn't say it was fun. Yeah. Because you're doing so many calculations in your head. You're moving so fast with a multi-million dollar piece of equipment. Yeah. You make one mistake and that's it. Yeah. And Frederick wanted to achieve that level because there's so many other jobs in aviation, in the military, in the Air Force to do that involves flying. And so he could have had another role. But what I was going to say is that uh, he had the determination, even with uh, these obstacles, to do that. And that says something about his character. Well, we've wrapped up an analysis of what Frederick Valentich seemed like he was like based on these interviews with all the people in his life that are in this report. Now it's time for us to move on to the circumstances of the disappearance and the aftermath of that. And we're going to get into that next week. But before we go, We're going to start with this. It turns out that five years after his Cessna 182L disappeared, some debris was found on an island called Flinders Island by a gentleman named Robert Withers. 
Now, Flinders Island is over 200 miles from the area that Valentich was thought to have disappeared at. It is, in fact, a large island north of the eastern end of Tasmania, whereas King Island is in a roughly similar position over the western end of Tasmania. So this piece, which was found on a beach, is consistent with an engine cowl or cover for a Cessna 182L, and it does fall into a range of serial numbers that would have made it possible for it to be from Valentich's plane, which is also the only known missing 182 in the area. Could this be proof that Frederick's plane actually did crash and not that he had absconded with it somehow, like some people think? Could it be proof that the plane couldn't have been captured by a UFO? Next week, we'll look at that. That's going to wrap up part one of our two-part series on the disappearance of Frederick Valentich. A very special thanks to George Sabados of the Float Your Boat podcast and Christopher Tyler, who will be a guest next week, for providing the voices we used in the radio conversation of Valentich's last flight. We'll be back next week with part two. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. This is Jay Freeman, and I give my permission to Astonishing Legends to use my voice however they see fit. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Please help me. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.